This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. Hello? Hello? (gasps) It's you. It's you. What is up? It's you. Uh, nothing much. <clears throat> Survived my trip to the grocery. Yeah, thank you. Survived my trip to the grocery store. <laughs> I guess I can't do that anymore. That I had thing because of COVID. Oh yeah, yeah. Because people think you're making fun of someone that's showing. <laughs> or like people are going to write into BTO. They're going to be like, "Does Josh have COVID nineteen? He he didn't sound so good." Oh god, yeah. He, he made all these weird throat noises and, like, you'll just, like, edit them all into, like, one, like, big, long one-minute file. Maybe I'll do that. Maybe I'll do that. Mm-hmm. Well, well, I'll just have to make sure I don't give you any ammunition. <laughs> okay. Can't wait to see if that works. Uh, any questions before we get started? Are you team apple slice okay. or team orange slice oh that's I interesting i think i just made that up i prefer apple slices just because you can eat the whole thing whereas uh the other one you can only uh eat the actual fruit part so that's interesting so you don't support student rights then well student rights what the they're, these are all metaphors this is like a rorschach test that's what you always thought when i was asking you questions like what was it? B- uh, waffles or pancakes? <laughs> because you always have a hidden agenda. <laughs> and I have to be very, very cautious. Yeah, yeah. I, I still don't know what was going on with that picture that you and Don had. <laughs> oh, wow. It's been like seven years. <laughs> That's okay. It'll happen one day. One yeah, day. the one day. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I think so. Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaking. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute... Something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, Boy Wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusaders. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. a blow shoots up through the stony ground there's no room no space 
space to rent in this town You're out of luck And the reason that you had to care The traffic is stuck And you're not moving anywhere You thought you found a friend To take you out of this place Someone you can lend a hand in return for grace. So beautiful. Salate, mihi nomen est Stella at hoc est Bacaro Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 191 for May MMXX. Bacaro the Oracle is brought to you by... Hello, podcast listener. Russell Bragg speaking. First off, I wanted to apologize for being off the air for so long. I never wanted it to be for that long. Life just got in the way. Second, this particular promo is a plan B promo. Time constraints restricted two friends of mine and me getting together and doing the promo I actually wanted to do, but it'll be coming soon. And third, the time has finally come. What time, you may ask? What time? It's time! It's made time! No former WCW heavyweight champion and WWF superstar, Big Van Vader. It's not Vader time. No, it's not even Howdy Doody time. It's time for the DC Comics Present Show to come back. I have designated Sunday, September 3rd as the return date for the podcast. I will give you more details in the forthcoming promo, but for now I just wanted to get the word out there that the show is coming back. I've been working hard on it, and I hope you enjoy it. So join me. Oh, I gotta take this. Hello, fellas. Hey, Russell. Russell? Yeah, but uh, could you hold on just a second? So, goodbye, podcast listener. Sorry about that, guys. I really wanted to thank you guys for helping me out with this. Now, if you have your scripts ready, let's see if we can make my last DC Comics Presents show promo my best promo. To be Don't forget, Sunday, September 3rd, the return of the DC Comics Presents show. You can find the DC Comics Presents show on Apple Podcasts, formerly iTunes, or Stitcher. Backroll the Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out MileHighComics.com. Well, if I am not mistaken, I'm pretty sure this is episode number three in quarantine (laughs) or lockdown, I guess we could say. And this time I have brought with me my dear friend, Joshua Lapp and Bertoni. So we, we are about maybe 700 miles social distance from each other. Is that true? Uh, I should know because I did the drive recently. <laughs> you uh, sure did. I don't remember how many miles it is. It might be about seven hundred. That that that's a. It might have been close to the eight hundred. I don't quite remember. Okay. But uh, I mean, I, I stopped at my brother's house on on the way. 
but like on the way back, I was like, okay, I'm going to do it all in one day, you know, let, let's go, let's go. And I pushed myself and I did. And the drive took me about 14 hours. So, okay. well, <laughs> I mean, we'll talk about that because I guess I haven't spoken to you online or recorded to, to mention what that is. But in general, I mean, welcome to back to the show. I think the last time you were on, we did, we did a special. Was it Cataclysm? We're not counting the anniversary shows, but (laughs) that's true, uh, I guess. Yeah, well, uh, like a non-anniversary show. Wow, has it only been the? Has it not been since Cataclysm? Because that was the one where, like, I pulled up to my old job and someone's like, "I heard you're eating food," and you're like, (laughs) "Oh goodness." Yeah, all all sorts of things. Well, anyways, here we are. God, that was 2017. (laughs) Oh. Wow, that seems that does seem like a long time ago. But are you sure? Because wasn't it? You know, no man's land is all blur now that I'm past it. But I thought, that yeah. Was. Okay. Well, anyways, here I, we are. I, I, I think that it was like October is 2017. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, you are back, and you made a request for a particular issue that we are going to review in the second half of the show, and we'll we'll talk about that. But. I've spoken to you via video. I did see you right before the shutdown happened because you were uh, a dear friend and (laughs) did something that not many people would do and just drove up to see my play, which I am ever appreciative of. But how have you been in in these current uh, (laughs) uh, circumstances and what sorts of things have you been doing to, you know, get out and and try to keep your positivity up? Oh, man. Um, Well, it's just it's the whole thing's kind of been like a train where uh, it's just going so fast and you really can't like, you know, step on or off. So I've been very lucky in that I've been very, very busy. So I haven't been like, oh, man, I'm so bored during this quarantine or something like that. Because I do a majority of my work online with the DC stuff now. Um, I still work with uh, some of the kids, but it's, um, you know, I I don't do as much of that as I did like five or six years ago. You know, I I have like a smaller roster now. And like with those kids, you know, sometimes we'll uh, we call them like social distancing, like homeschool PE, where like I took a few of them on um, a three and a half hour like trail. uh, a flat one because Estella knows I don't do well with the. I don't did you do wear well proper ma- footwear? That's what I'm even more. You know, I did, and I wore sandals. But it was Ugh. like, it, I, yeah, we're we're Flo- we're Floridians. But uh, yeah, we we did. You know, we did a a trail uh, walking from Clearwater to Tampa. If anyone knows the area, so that that was about uh, eight nine miles, and you know, a few and a few other things to you know try and like keep people engaged, but uh. I've been very busy. And then there was uh, when this happened, there was a family crisis, uh, which uh, I've spoken to you more in depth about, like off the recording. Mm-hmm. I won't be specific about it here because it's private, but something horrible happened to a member of my family who I had to go down and help. And that's been kind of upsetting. Um, yeah, I've been really, really busy. And uh <laughs> Part of me is like actually waiting for things to slow down so I can relax a little bit. But when you're a freelancer, you don't want things to slow down too much because then that's when the money stopped. Yeah, I mean, I do Zoom meetings. I do uh, all, all this stuff. It's been uh, I try and go for long walks when I can, because uh, even with the stay at home orders, like, you know, you're allowed to go out and exercise. Tampa briefly had a thing where uh, they changed the stay at home orders to curfew and the city and the county disagreed on if you were allowed to like be out walking during the curfew 
the like uh, city commission said, yes, you can be out walking. So I said, OK, great. So I went out walking and a cop stopped me and they said, hey, you can't be out walking. And I was like, but the city thing said and he said, sir, you got to go home. And I'm like, OK, I'm I'm not going to escalate this. I just went home. Uh, and then like uh, one of the city county commissioners, who's actually a friend of mine, uh, like she found I posted about that on Facebook and she said, call me tomorrow. And we spoke and then the city commission had like a meeting and the curfew was like gone after two days. I'm very mad at our Florida governor because he's he has not done things really well during this crisis. Like he's reopening beaches and he was like very, very late to close the beaches. It's just been uh, a crazy, crazy thing. And uh, I didn't tell you this. So like you're actually going to be horrified. But like I actually got like low key attacked. Like one of the times I went out walking too. These like people like uh, drove by me and like started like throwing stuff at me from their car window, like an egg hit me and like smashed on me and I had to do like a police report. So uh, it's been no man's land over here in Tampa. What was the point of that? Just being jerks? Yeah, just just being jerks. It's (sighs) it's (laughs) I think people are just starting to get really, really crazy because they're cooped up like so long and uh not everyone handles it the best. Like there was um, I was following a story about a bunch of mothers over in uh, I think it was Idaho. They like planned this protest where like they went to a park and uh, the playground was closed and they like took down the tape from the playground and were playing. And then the cops said, hey, you have to leave. And one of the moms got like really aggressive with like the cop and like said, go ahead, arrest me. And he arrested her. I watched that. and I was like, man, it's uh, this People are not used to certain things, and I think it's – I'm trying to say this delicately because I don't want to, you know, uh, downplay people's real-life stressors. But people are, you know, not handling change in lifestyle really well, and it's – and I'm sympathetic to some of that. But on the other hand, too, a lot of this is really necessary, you know, what we're doing. It's it's necessary for – Reasons that would be way too long to get into now. And um, it's funny, right before this happened um, and right right before I saw you in your play, I was um, up in Kentucky uh, uh, visiting um, uh, spoiler uh, Ben. <laughs> and uh, when his mom, Alexa, she was taking me to the airport. And as we were like, this is like the end of February, beginning of March. And she was talking to me. She was saying this is going to hit us hard and we're going to be staying like we, when she, we, as in like Americans, we're going to have to be used to like being home for a very, very long period of time. Like people are going to be stocking up on groceries and I'm listening to what she's saying. And, you know, this is an intelligent woman, you know, like, you know, she's got her, you know, uh, doctors of nursing practitioner, whatever. And like, she knows the medical industry, but I'm kind of in denial about this. I'm thinking, Oh, it's not going to be because, our country's never faced anything like this before, except for like the Spanish flu, but not like in our lifetime. You're kind of like cocky thinking like, oh, America's not going to like completely shut down. I'm, like I said, I was listening to her. She's telling me this. I'm thinking, OK, you know, like I'm, I'm not telling her she's wrong. But in my head, I'm thinking this is an exaggeration. It's not going to get that bad. And uh, I got to give Alexa credit because she was spot on everything that like she was predicting, like the stay at home orders, the shortages of like toilet paper and stuff like that happened. And she was saying that at like the end of February. But because we never experienced anything like this, we don't think it's going to happen. And it's like really weird, like all these like 
place is closed. And it's, uh, I'm very, very sad for some people because I know that, knock on wood, unless something changes for me drastically, I know that I'll bounce back from this. And I know that, like, a lot of people I know will. But there's people who can't because, like, it only takes one missed paycheck for, like, certain lives to be ruined. And, like, when schools were closed, I felt bad for a lot of, like, parents around the world because I was like, oh, man, like, they can't afford. I mean, unfortunately, the school closing, it's necessary. But, like, I'm like, oh, man, these parents, they, like, can't afford child care. What are they going to do? And then those parents are now, like, out of work. And, uh, you know, the stimulus checks came, but it's that only goes so far. So I'm really sad for a lot of people who worked very, very hard to like, kind of like, you know, stay afloat. And now they're saying, I don't know. (laughs) This is actually going to be a little bit of a downer. (laughs) Well, no, I mean, I think it's true that, yeah, there, there's going to be far reaching rippling effects with this. I'm hoping that there are some positive outcomes to it as well. But, um, you know, I think we need to, get rid of our selfish natures in order for a lot of this stuff to to move forward. And I assume with all the the Florida stuff, it was economic reasons why the the governor wasn't doing doing anything as quickly since, you know, you guys are such a a boon for vacation and and all of that stuff. So I I mean, at least that's what Shag had said also, you know, they were waiting to shut it down until spring breakers were gone, so they had that sort of thing. But uh but at least we can still get out cuz I think that's a great thing, and, you know, once it's like if it ever gets to lockdown, lockdown, that'll be really terrible. But that we can still go out and enjoy fresh air, I think, is great. And we still have power, so we're not in the apocalypse. But um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so what have you been watching or reading? Oh, uh, a lot. I mean, <laughs> reading so much DC Comics, because like uh, with all these articles and stuff, like, you know, I'm usually reading comics to support the articles, watching. Well, I broke down and I watched Tiger King and it made me very angry oh because my like, gosh. yeah, it, it actually made me angry because um, one of the subjects of Tiger King, Carol Baskin and like people listening to that, like Carol Baskin, she killed her husband. Like it's uh, <laughs> she lives in Tampa and um, uh, you remember Mindy, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Mindy, my stepmom, Carol, ba- <laughs> Carol Baskin is like. A, a semi-hero of my stepmom's like she's like gone over the big cat rescue and been there and there's just like so much stuff in that documentary that like and people are gonna tell me well what about this what about like no there's like i live in tampa there's so, like we've heard these stories for years there's so much stuff in there that's like been disproven like people like like someone said to me on facebook if you if you remove the septa tank you'll find her husband and like the hillsborough county sheriff actually came out to say like hey, that septic tank wasn't even put in there until years after he died. So like, and I said to that person, you believe that because of the documentary, like you're being manipulated into thinking something. And I guess I'm going to get people angry at me when I say this, but um, it says a lot about how sexist our society is that like a man can go to jail for trying to like hire a hitman to kill a woman and people side with the man and say that he's the hero and vilify the woman in that situation. It's just, but I don't want you to get Tiger King mail in um in BTO. Uh, what else have I been watching? Um, you're gonna be you're gonna be mad at this answer, but uh, Steven Universe Future uh, that ended at the beginning of the lockdown. That was like the grand finale, and uh, and it's actually funny because one of my friends, um, 
her kids were watching it and uh, they don't have the last uh, season of the regular show and the sequel show on Hulu. So she had me like come over a few times so like she could watch it because she like she got addicted to it watching with her kids and she wanted to see how it ended. And uh, we watched um, I just told the story online like we we had a few like watch parties and uh, at the end of the final episode when like Steven is like leaving forever and he's like saying goodbye and it's like the grand ending and it like fades out and like we're all quiet. Her kid says, when does season two come out? <laughs> we're like, oh, boy, <laughs> there's no season two. <laughs> That's it. That's all. That is all. But yeah, no, not much. I'm not playing Last of Us like you and Harold and Donovan. <laughs> well, it's Donovan who's well being forced away, but now he's betrayed us by. Um, uh, when does aside. he not betray but, us? Thank you, thank you for saying that. <laughs> and he put that aside and has picked up Final Fantasy VII remake. So I, whenever I go on and see him playing that, I send him a message. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I have, I guess, from last time continue to read uh currently i'm reading the first part of the histories of the targaryens which who knows when george R. R. martin would put out the second one but uh so that's interesting and then i had watched season four of teen titans uh again i should say and then i have started re-watching ben 10 alien force which is actually a good favorite of mine it's been long enough that i can like really really enjoy it because it, it's kind of far enough away or there's space enough between us so those uh have been fun but otherwise yeah not too much of a tr- uh a change from when last i spoke to people um i have started cycling a bit more so walking and cycling and yeah just trying to get out there and uh make it i mean it's a bit of a groundhog's day situation where you're just doing the same thing every day so trying to put in some variety is always good mm-hmm. and they canceled sdcc that's yeah, uh sure that, that, that that's happened since uh your last episode yeah well, we're here to talk about sunnier and funner things. And as my promise to you, you know, I'm trying to give you normalcy to your lives. So hopefully, you know, unless something disastrous happens, Batgirl the Oracle will still continue to come out. And so Josh and I here have a bit of a cleanup episode. And I'm making my way towards, I guess, the summer blockbuster will be Officer Down. Um, so we've got some that uh, I'm just going to go through and talk about what Barbara does in these individual issues. But there are two issues that we're going to do a full review on. I actually thought it was going to just be one, but then I read the <laughs> the other one and I thought, oh, wait, she's in way more than I thought that she was going to be in. So, so that's what we're doing here. So... Some of the ones that we were not talking about, uh, they all took place in 2000. So first we have Detective Comics 743, which has an April 2000 cover date. And Oracle just reminds <laughs> Batman that there is a party at the library and that Bruce Wayne put $6 million into restoring it. And she says that she'll see him there. So that was, that was basically her appearance there. In September of 2000, Flash Annual 13 appeared or came out 
and Flash is on watchtower duty, and Oracle, who is probably in her clock tower, are playing chess, and Oracle teaches him a valuable lesson of slowing down since she's actually beating him, so good for Babs. And in November 2000, we had Detective Comics 750, where Oracle is helping Batman track down a Swiss bank account for Raish al Ghul. And then the final one we're not talking about is the night. I was close, but we're not going to do it. The Nightwing 80 page giant number one, which came out in December 2000. Dick is working on a case about Leo Holcomb, who was a former bl- uh, commissioner of Bloodhaven, and he asks Babs for some help. She provides some history she knew from her father. And while they are comms, Nightwing actually sneaks in because he knows her codes and they share a kiss. So there was a shiver moment. So I was glad that we see that. He has to be on duty in an hour and she says that next time he should come in his policeman uniform. The next time he contacts her, she is actually with Dinah Lance, which was interesting just because we actually haven't seen that yet in Birds of Prey. Dinah offers her uh, help to Nightwing, but he says he's making headway, and she takes this as a brush-off. And then later, Babs helps Nightwing go through some photographs to find where Chief Redhorn may be hiding before the antagonist, Hela, does find him. So, So those are the ones that we're just skipping on over. So then we get to, this is one that I thought we would not cover, but it's Batman and Superman World's Finest Number 5 from August of 1999. Writer Carl Kiesel, penciler Dave Taylor, inker Robert Campanella, and colorist Alex Sinclair. Now, issue, because we're not doing, I'm not doing the whole story, but issue one, uh, I guess on the cover of the trade or maybe the, the first cover, it says, A Dark Knight, A Man of Steel, told here for the first time, is one of the earliest adventures teaming these two iconic heroes, but the results of this early case are far from idyllic. A failure to work smoothly as a team and seemingly in the death of an innocent, and the guilt that haunts the two heroes will have long-reaching consequences for all involved. I did reach out to Michael Bailey because there's not much information on like the wiki or anything, and I just wondered what was the, the main conceit of this. Uh, and it's basically each year, because I think it's a 10-issue series, each issue covers a year in their partnership with quotes or relationship. I also asked about Thorn, who is going to pop up, and he said that Thorn was Thorn. a character. Yeah, that popped up in Lois Lane's book in the 70s. She's a street-level hero. Her real identity is Rose. But she doesn't know that she becomes Thorn at night to avenge her father. He says Dan Jurgens brought her back in Booster Gold, and she was part of the supporting heroes in the early 90s. And Gail Simone did her own version in the early 2000s, and Bendis recently brought her back. And then I asked what happened to her father, because as we'll see, Batman relates to, or shows empathy, can you believe it, to her past, because he can tell that He shows it. lots of empathy this uh, episode. I can hardly believe it. And, uh... <laughs> Though, I mean, we'll talk about it in the other one. And he says that I think they, uh, he was killed by Gangster's Thorn's father uh, by the 100, which, of course, tracks since that's what we'll be focusing on. So just mm-hmm. to give you some history to this whole series, but we're just going to focus on – Yeah, and thank you, Dustin. We're just going to focus on issue number five. So here we go, the synopsis. 
two crooks are trying to break into the Gotham City Library, talking about how Gotham is ripe for the picking, when Batgirl shows up and surprises them both, and I should say it's like Bronze Age Batgirl. She incapacitates one and is ready to throw war and peace, literally, at the other when Superman shows up. After fangirling a bit, Batgirl cuffs the perps and unmasks them, noting they are from Metropolis's gang, The 100. Superman is surprised at her knowledge, and Batgirl says that she read some files and has a photographic memory. Batgirl suggests she and Superman team up to find out why the gang is in Gotham. This is pleasantly surprising to Superman, and he notes that she is not like Batman, since she suggests a team-up. Earlier, she says that Superman is not like Batman, since he is not rushing or timing her or, you know, frankly, judging her. Elsewhere, the 100 are meeting with Donnie and his men in order to create a connection in Gotham. The 100 set it up, and Donnie keeps it running smoothly. Their meeting is interrupted by Thorne, a vigilante who has been harassing the 100 back in Metropolis. She attacks both groups before being knocked out by Donnie. Batgirl brings Superman to meet the Commissioner Gordon, who is praised by Superman for his good work. Batgirl updates Gordon as to their case and assures him that everyone was out but his daughter out of the library, but his daughter Barbara, who is also fine. As Batgirl rides away, Gordon tells Superman to watch out for Batgirl since she is someone's daughter. So kind of that classic Bronze Age feel. Superman says that she has been handling herself well. Batgirl and Superman go to the burglar's car, which she noticed circling the library. She had removed the spark plugs in case they planned to get away. Taped to the glove compartment is a rubbing of an address, presumably by Batman. Superman flies Batgirl there to meet up with him. On the way, Superman asks why Batgirl emulates Batman since he is so much darker. Thank you. What a good question. She says that he is inspiring and only dark because he is in the middle of the darkness trying to get himself and everyone out. He sees the light in the distance and may be the only one who can. Meanwhile, back at the gang meeting, Donnie is told to shoot Thorne, but he talks instead, planning on how to make it dramatic when Thorne uses that time to get away. The lights suddenly go off and people get knocked out. One of the gang tries to drive away, but when he puts on his lights, he sees Batman and crashes. Thorne, now untied, confronts the number two of the 100. She does not want to show mercy, but Batman stays her hand. Thorne says the law doesn't matter to them and people who get in the way, good people get killed. Batman shows <gasps> empathy and talks about being so deep into the mission. Batgirl and Superman arrive with everything wrapped up, but Batgirl still wonders what was to be gained from robbing the library, as do we all. Batman interrogates number two, and he says they were going to plant evidence that incriminates, of all people, Barbara Gordon for embezzling library funds. Then blackmail the commissioner since he would do anything for his daughter. Thorne and Batgirl are incensed and Superman says it wouldn't have worked with the librarian's bookkeeper giving proof of Batgirl's innocence. Except number two says the bean counter was to be killed, leading Babs to be suspect number one. Superman and Batgirl fly over to the bean counter's house as Batman leads the gang to jail and Thorne goes back to Metropolis with, could you believe... A bat on the back from Batman so that she can bring the 100 down to zero, as she says. At the bean counter's house, after midnight, which is suspicious for an older person, to be honest, Barbara shows up at the house to warn 
him about the embezzling schemes and potential attempt on his life when she suddenly pulls a gun. Superman steps in the way of the bullet and Batgirl knocks Barbara out, revealing, of course, a pretender. Afterwards, Batman and Superman meet. Superman tells Batman that Batgirl is bright and will do fine, that she doesn't need Batman to train her anymore, but he was happy to check up on her for Batman. Batman says he knows all this, so Superman just mansplained Batman. He knows all this and that what Superman he really <laughs> There you go. That what he really wanted was Superman to give his opinion of her, which shocked Superman since he didn't know Batman valued it. Batman agrees with Superman on his assessment of Batgirl, so this is all positive stuff, though I do have one issue with it. Batman is also surprised that someone dark like Thorn is in Metropolis, but Superman says sometimes bright spots make darker shadows. Batman remarks that she must have a tragic past and intimates that something similar happened to him and he may one day tell Superman about it. And that is where we end year five, I believe it says, since it's issue five. Whew, okay, so this was, I was not expecting this. Uh, before we get into the actual story and everything, the cover, what do you think about the cover and also the art that we have in, in there? Uh, so Batman, Superman, we've got, Bat. well, we have Superman, I would say, front. Uh, he's kind of got a scowl on his face, and Batman's in back, and you see these legs, and then if you scroll down... Get a load of them gams. Yeah, those gams, because I couldn't tell at first. I thought, you know, she's just going to pop up, and I thought, oh, it must be Catwoman, but if you scroll down, or well, I mean, you look down with your eyes. You see, <laughs> oh, it must. We're be. not reading these online. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, it must be Batgirl. So there she is, and I like the uh, advertisement on the right, which has some of the um, the artists as well with the green eyes and everything. Uh, which you know, sometimes she has green eyes, sometimes she doesn't. But yeah, what are your thoughts on the cover? Yeah, let me uh, let me open up the cover again. I was never crazy about the art in this book. Like Superman's face is like it looks like an eraser. An eraser. The shape of it? Yeah. Yeah, like look at look at his head. It's the proportions kind of like feel off for me. Um the art in the book isn't ugly, but it's like it's just not my preferred comic style of art. Like even like flipping through to the title page, like Superman's face, it's really like long, like he's Mr. Fantastic. Uh, but I mean, yeah, I it, guess, like, yeah. yeah, it it doesn't distract me like from like the rest of the series. But like, this isn't one of those books like uh, like another one that we'll be covering today, where it's like, oh man, this art is really good. Like, yeah, I you know I like it. I think I like it because it's different than what I'm used to, and it's not different in a bad way. I really like the cover, as I said, because I was actually reading it online. And I was surprised to see, oh, it's Batgirl Shadow. So I like how they do that. And you have her and then these two guys kind of, um, I don't know, looking at her quizzically or sizing her up or dubious. And then you kind of get a sense of what the story is going to be about. Um, But I think a lot of what attracts me to the art also is just that it's my favorite costume of Barbara bringing back the the gray and the blue which makes sense given the time and doesn't have the weapons purse but uh, just to have that classicness i think is great and i also like the fact that it seems like everything is taking place at night but if you're looking at you know barbara backroll's interaction with superman and then with batman and thorn it almost seems like you've got day versus night though it's all happening at the same time so i like how the coloring reflects i think those characters and it's interesting how light characters were attracted to each other like 
characters were attracted to each other. But anyways, uh, but I agree. I mean, it's not like the best art I've ever seen, but I do like that it's different. And I think it fits potentially uh, the tone of the book and, and the story. Of course, this is the only issue that I've read of this Batman and Superman world's finest, but I'd be interested to read more. Okay, uh, so <laughs> this. It, what do you think about the uh, mission or case overall, where we started and then how everything sort of wrapped up together? I mean, the this, this story, what do you think about it? I like this a lot more than I thought I was going to because I did flip through this like at, you know – when I was like in middle school, I would like, you know, ride my bike to a Barnes and Nobles or Borders. And, you know, before the days when comics were as accessible as they were now because of like digital and like, you know, you have Marvel Unlimited and DC Universe, like you only had a certain budget to read comics per week. So if I wanted to like read things that I couldn't afford, I would just like go to Borders or Barnes and Nobles and like sit in the comic book section and like flip through the trade paperbacks. You know, even then, like stuff like Wikipedia and like other fan sites weren't as big. So this was how like you found out backstories and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. As snobby and elitist as I am now, I was actually a lot worse as like a middle schooler. So like I always resented like flashback tales because I thought that they were trying to like, you know, like retell like older eras. And I and I was very, 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 very high standards and I never thought that they were doing it right. So. I did flip through this book when I was like in middle school and I didn't have a high opinion of it, but it's a lot more fun now. And actually, like it was a lot more truer to like the era than I remembered it being because um, I've read I've since read like the Superman's girlfriend, Lois Lane stuff and like all that stuff about Thorn fighting the 100 over in Metropolis. Like that was that was what was going on in those Superman's girlfriend, Lois Lane books. Like that was like a solid era because uh you know, after like the first dozen issues where it's like, you know, Lois Lane turns into a gorilla and tries to marry Superman like every other issue. The book went through this phase where it like tried to get serious, like Lois gets like a new hairdo and wacky roommates and like, you know, uh, does a bunch of social justice like causes uh, kind of like how Green Arrow and Green Lantern did. But like no one remembers that era of Lois. And it's actually really weird because the letters pages was like a lot of like it's like the YouTube videos now of people who hate Brie Larson. Like there was lots of letter pages over like you guys are being too feminist. You're turning off the male readers. And so in response to that, they added a new column to Lois Lane. And this is really weird where it was basically like an official column for the book where like some DC editor who like was writing under like a pseudonym was like taking the man side on issues like complaining about how Lois Lane was being too feminist and they were publishing it in Lois Lane which is like a very bizarre thing to do but uh Thorne was a backup running in those uh stories and then sometimes she would cross over to the main book and like you know she would like team up you know with like Lois to like take down the 100 and stuff like that so I was like oh wow yeah this is very very much of the era <laughs> and it's kind of interesting too because yeah like you know uh Batgirl is, uh, you know, Batman's like person of this era and they're treating like kind of Thorn as if she was like Superman's like Batgirl of the era where really she wasn't because she wasn't like teaming up with Superman and stuff that much in the era. But it's it's fun. And I like the idea of the 100 like kind of it just shows that, you know, even though Gotham's this darker place, like their plan really wouldn't have worked because – Gordon is not someone that would be blackmailed like he wouldn't have like done that. So like it shows like they don't know Gotham and as dark as Gotham is like 
you know, it's not as corrupted as people would think it is that, you know, a plan like that wouldn't work. So I had fun with the story and I did flip ahead to like the other issues out of curiosity to see like how well they held up. And there was a really good one where uh, Superman confesses to uh, Batman about him killing the Phantom Zone criminals. And he's like, was this before or after you told me not to kill the Joker? And Superman's like, it was right before. And Batman's like, I see. Get out of the Batcave right now. Oh, gosh. Yeah, if only if only uh, Batman had killed the Joker, we wouldn't have all the issues we have now. Yeah, I like similar to you. I think though you had read this pre previously, this is my first introduction to it, and you said that you know it holds up well and you liked it more. Like I was I was presently surprised with how good this is, and I liked how it started off with you know with this people trying to break into the Gotham Library. You're thinking, what on earth are they going to get? Are they going to get you know some rare books, which is what she had thought? And then Batgirl appears, which is apropos since that is her territory as Barbara Gordon. And War and Peace shows up, which I just thought was great since I of course have recently read that. But it's just such a a mission and a story that I think really suits Batgirl, period, you know, even without the other characters. And then to have Superman there that, you know, just shows up. And, and I think that's just like a great day for her. And to have this connection with him, not only the Batman connection, they can so sort of joke to each other about how they are each not <laughs> like Batman, but just also being, I think, bright spots in in the, the DCU. And then on the other side, you know, you have this intriguing character of Thorne who has a tragic past, which is not, not a surprise, but comes from Metropolis where you wouldn't really think Thorne would come from and having that connection with Batman. And, and then everything gets tied in because that part gets wrapped up really quickly and you're like but wait we still have this mystery and for it to all come around you know i'm trying to get, frame barbara gordon for embezzling i think on one hand it's like that's almost silly or absurd but on the other hand you think oh wow that you know it, it's a classic i think bronze age kind of tale that yes of course we're going to try to get to commissioner gordon which i guess this is almost like a woman in refrigerators situation right refrigerators by going through barbara but you know framing her of course daddy's little girl would never do that so he's going to protect her and then you got to get rid of someone who could provide proof so it's all of this stuff and it's ground level which is what i really love for backrow and barbara gordon so when I read this, it brought me so much joy, you know, as, as Shag says, find your joy. And it was one of those things where I felt nostalgic, of course, for, I think, Bronze Age tales. And then I also felt like, oh, this these are the kind of stories that I wish would be told now in the current Batgirl, because I think this is really what suits her. So I very much enjoyed it. Uh, what do you think about the portrayal of Batgirl? We could also say Barbara Gordon. Uh, how is she written? Do you feel like she really felt like period, Batgirl, Batgirl period, and then even if you want to talk about her in the Bronze Age, like, did it really work well with that? Yeah, and again, that that's one thing that uh, I always very, very critically look at when I read these flashback tales is, like, anything that doesn't feel like it's of the era, I immediately hone in on, and I'm like, nope, 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 but uh, this all felt very, very natural to me, like, uh, I, Barbara's voice and everything like that, it, uh, it works, so, yeah, no, I, I liked her portrayal, uh, I like her answer to Superman, like, you know, well, why do you emulate Batman then, and, like, honestly, the simple answer is, she lives in Gotham City, and, like, you know, and the whole Batgirl thing was, like, for the costume party, so, like, that's why, but... 
you know, her answer makes sense. And uh, we did have those other, you know, retcon origin tales, too, where, like, she idolized Batman to a degree. And I thought that uh, Carl Kiesel, he did a good job of justifying it. And uh, I like this. I, the characters all felt right to me. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think uh, she's written really well and smartly. You know, I think she would fangirl a bit at, at seeing Superman, which is great. And she's got, you know, those clever answers when she runs up against the or two or she's with the commissioner, which is yeah. very true of the Bronze Age trying to, you know, come up with things. And then he, of course, has this retort, which is very Bronze Age as well. Yeah, the emulation, you know, that that always gets me because I think that is more in this post-crisis, especially I think when Barbara Kiesel, you know, sort of turned that around because initially it wasn't really – I mean, yes, it was modeled after him, but it was more as, you know, like, I'm going to get my father's go. It was more of like a joke situation. And I think she respects Batman, but not in the, you know. So the emulation thing, you know, always gets at me a little bit. But I agree that it's not so far as saying, you know, she either had a crush on him or is like so enamored with him. But, but you know, I appreciate what she has to say about him. Do you agree with that? You know, because that's a question, right, that Batman is so dark and Barbara, I think, and, and other Batgirls, with the exception maybe of Cassandra, though Donovan could, could disagree with me, yeah. are kind of the bright spots in his life and on the team. Do you agree that he's only dark because he's kind of in the midst of it, but he's really the only one who can see the end out of it and, and the light at the end of all of this darkness? See, I, I think it's he wouldn't be doing – what he was doing in Gotham if he didn't think that there was a light at the end of the tunnel, if he didn't think that he can make a difference. But uh, yes, the whole light thing, it does get lost in his, you know, M.O. and stuff like that. And there's different versions of Batman where uh, like depending on what Aaron who's writing him, where he is more about rehabilitating the criminals and like sponsoring them on parole boards and like checking up on them and like you know doing things to give them a second chance but those things get played down depending on you know what era we're in or what we're writing in but I, i'd say it's certainly true that uh you know batman is more light than people give him credit for he's just darker than like superman and stuff like that mm-hmm. yeah. well, one line that i did take issue with and this is and part of this is just do the retcons is like at the end where like it's like, yeah, you don't need to train her anymore. And I, I don't like it when people kind of redo Barbara's origin story to say to like make it like Batman was the one who trained her. Because even in like the Bronze Age and like those old stories, Batman didn't train her. She trained herself and she showed up and fought crime and she would go home separately at the end of the day. She never you know she wouldn't really go back to the Batcave with them except for like one or two occasions here or there uh, other stories like uh Batgirl year one and like you know some of the old batman chronicle stuff like they would sit they, they'd kind of redo it that like batman would train her like she was one of the robins but i've i've never liked that and i don't like it when other stories reference that because in my mind no she she did this herself and she basically came to the chessboard already re- already trained up and ready to go yeah, no, I, I see that. And uh, at least with Batgirl Year One, I mean, she started off on her own. And it was, I think she proved herself to Batman before he continued her training. So at least there's that uh, middle ground. But yeah, I agree with that. And, and just, you know, the fact that, you know, as someone... <laughs> 
does she need permission to, you know, end her training kind of thing or that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, with that, I do want to – I'll skip to this question that one of the issues I had with that end connection between Superman and Batman, which overall I liked, is that they're talking to each other, but he doesn't relay this to Batgirl herself. Like the fact that he knows mm-hmm. she's smart and she's capable and she doesn't need training anymore and she'll be fine. But he doesn't tell it to the one person that I think needs to hear it. And so I just wonder, do you think – and I don't mean this in a negative – like I'm not trying to condemn Batman here because, you know, Donovan thinks that I'm – If Donovan I'm was here, he'd him. be like, oh, come on. If Batman <laughs> said that there, you'd be like, he's blasphemy, Stella. Yeah. But <laughs> no, I just wonder, do you think positive reinforcement is a negative thing for Batman because maybe he thinks his partners get too comfortable or maybe too prideful and it's dangerous for them? Or is there some other reason that he – would not go to Barbara and say all these things to her? It's a very good question. And like, it's, this will be something like, it could almost be like an hours long discussion, but you know, we don't have that long, so it won't be. I don't think it's about keeping his partner. Like, I don't think it's like a red foreman thing where he's like trying to keep them tough by not saying it. I think he does just have problems communicating just because it's, that's what some of the other books have dealt with is him realizing that and him trying to learn how to be a better motivator. We got to keep in mind that his he watched his parents get shot when he was eight. So when you don't grow up normally with like a normal sort of parental upbringing and influence, it does change how you emotionally connect with people. And I think that Batman does have, you know, as close as he is to people like Alfred and Dick, he does have problems emotionally connecting with people. And like, and that shows in a lot of his relationships. Uh, Donovan and I were like joking on the phone this week about how Bruce Wayne, like kind of like treats his girlfriends. And even in like the golden age, when he was engaged, like he just like, his fiance like just dumps him because he's like disinterested in like everything. And that's like, even though that was a 1940s story that was written, it wasn't written with the hindsight of Batman's emotional issues. These were just like done in one pulp stories. It does kind of speak to Batman's inability to connect with people. And I think that does stem from, you know, just being eight years old and seeing your parents shot and not having a normal childhood. Yeah, I, I can, I think, get on board with that. I, of course, disagree with I, – I feel like I would like to see Batman give that reinforcement, uh, positive reinforcement at right. times. I think it, it takes a while for him to do it. I mean even in the next issue that we'll do, it takes – you say that he shows empathy, but it like takes him a while to even get to that point throughout that conversation, which we can talk about. Uh, yeah, people, people sh- have to push him to like do yeah. it. like and yeah. Um, and, and he's been, well, I guess nothing tragic besides his, cause Jason shouldn't exist yet. So for the most part, you know, I just wonder, mm-hmm. you know, why can't you reach out and do that? And, and connecting to that, why do you think Batman needs someone else's opinion on Batgirl and in particular Superman's? Why does he look to him for that? I think it's the case of like, just going from the conversation that he's having with Superman, I think it's a case of like he's and not that Batman's her father, but like if you're a parent and you're like proud of your kid and you want to show off your kid, I think, you know, and he can't um, articulate these feelings. I think he's proud of Barbara and wants to show her off to Superman. 
I, 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 I think that's what it is. Okay. You know? So, yeah, it could be. It could be. Yeah, and, and on the other side, you know, maybe he wants someone at least. Maybe he doesn't trust his own instincts or wants to be especially sure and looks to someone else's opinion. Uh, I think potentially speaking more than Barbara, I think it speaks of his relationship to Superman at that particular moment. It seems like we're in a year five seems like a good year for them potentially. (laughs) And that's another thing that depends upon the era and who's writing, what their relationship is, because they're either best friends or they're not. Yep. Oh, what do you think about the team up, Batgirl and Superman and Thorn and Batman and how it was all set up? <laughs> Thorn and Batman was was OK, because, again, Thorn is like a less defined character than like Batgirl is because she's not she hasn't starred in like, you know, a bunch of TV series. She wasn't in a Lego movie. She, you know, she uh, she's not on DC Universe's Harley Quinn. She wasn't a baby in the final season of Gotham. So like Thorne is more malleable in terms of like, you know, when the writers do her. So uh, the team up with back on Superman. Um, I, I like that. I almost thought that this was an episode of the animated series. I'm like, no, this wasn't an episode of the animated series. This was um, an issue of, I think Superman adventures, the tie in comic. Like they did one in the, uh, the late 90s, early 2000s, where it was set in like the continuity of the animated series where you, you had a story like this, where it's Batgirl teaming up with Superman. And it was very similar, like, you know, him realizing, oh, you're you're not as uptight as your boss and her kind of appreciating that he was more emotionally connected and like more encouraging. And I think there's even a scene of like him, uh, her riding on him while they're flying and her enjoying that. So. There are some similarities there. In fact, because of the year that this issue came out, I'm almost wondering what story came first. Because uh, in continent, we haven't had a lot of uh, Batgirl, Superman interactions like one on one. We had those besides it, the DC stuff. I was Washington, about to say, DC. yeah, <laughs> they had that bad date in Washington, D.C. Sure did. I just wrote about that for an article that's not up yet. It's like. It was like seven things you didn't know about Barbara Gordon. I put she dated Superman. They had a really, really bad date in Washington, D.C. It was Akotaka. I hope you mentioned Tony, that she had another brother. I didn't just because, like, it's that's another. I've spoken about Tony in enough other places. And and I make the same jokes about him each time in in that he was, like, very, very weird in that world's finest issue. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) The sign of Superman. Yeah, no, I think it's a good pairing, obviously light with light and dark with dark. And I think with either of them, they have lessons. It's a nice like mentor and apprentice sort of relationship, though I think both Thorne and Batgirl are beyond that apprenticeship, but just someone that can relate to them somehow and talk to them in a different way. And seeing Batgirl with Superman is just a lot of fun. And when they're flying together, I think that's fun. And I feel like all the time there's, you know, a smile on their faces, which is great. And then, of course, you know, you go to Thorn and Batman and there, there are no smiles. But I think, like I said before, I think there there is that poignant moment where she is disheartened at, you know, the 100 and, and reveals some tragedy about her past and says the, the key phrase of you don't understand. But Batman really does. And I think he shows great empathy in that moment and, and relates well to her. 
So I like that interesting team up because once I started reading, I thought, oh, this is clearly just clearly just going to be Batgirl and Superman, and 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 then when Thorn popped up, that was interesting. It, it added a, a new dimension and how it all worked together. So, uh, any other thoughts on this issue? It would have been funny if she would have said, "Remember that time when I was at summer camp as a little girl, and I." <laughs> And and I attacked those campers dressed in sheets, and you had to stop me. Oh. Well, do you remember that story? He, yes, but I guess he doesn't remember that story. I don't think that's in continuity. In this issue, but, Probably not. Yeah. Uh, no, I yeah, no, no no other comments. I, I think we uh, I, I think we covered it pretty well. This was this was a pleasant um, this was a pleasant issue. I, I I didn't feel like the art was super pleasant, but it was a pleasant issue. Okay, out of 10 rare editions of War and Peace, what would you give it? Oh, man, that's uh, 10 rare editions is not so rare if there's 10 of them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I would say so. (laughs) Uh, I'll go ahead and give it a 7. A 7? Wow, that's lower than I would have expected. I Like I said, I really liked it. I thought it was a fun story, one that really matched with Barbara Gordon Batgirl period, as well as this period in her life, the Bronze Age. So I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10 of rare book, rare <laughs> editions rare of War and Peace. There you go. Before we take our break, I have some listener emails. Mail time, mail time, mail time. Mail time. Mail time. Mail time. News here. Here's the mail. It never fails. It makes me want to wag my tail. When it comes, I want to wail. First is from Max with two X's, which I really like. They say, because I assume, well, I'll just say they. They say, Stella, while listening to the past few episodes, I've realized something about characters that the masses don't know about. Here we go. Batman has Nightfall, No Man's Land, and Hush. Superman has the death of Superman, obviously. Even Marvel characters have their defining arcs, such as Iron Man's Demon in a Bottle and Spider-Man's The Night Gwen Stacy Died. Characters that the general audience don't know think all the Batgirls, the Robins, Moon Knight, and Black Canary don't have arcs that aren't amazing. Some of these stories come with a caveat, like if the story is a crossover or a major event. But this still isn't a defense in my eyes. If your favorite, there's that weird spelling again, (laughs) a character is Black Canary, there should be a story in her own history that is crucial for her not found in the pages of Green Arrow and Retconned later on. You can prove me wrong. I'm not as versed in comics as you are, and I'll be happy to be wrong, but I just don't hear about arcs that are regarded as amazing when it comes to smaller characters. Some arcs are highly praised, but only among fans of that character. This wall of text does come with a question, though. What is a Batgirl arc? (laughs) Any Batgirl that you consider a major event in her life. To make it more difficult, oh great, uh, try and find one within the pages of a smaller book so Cassandra Cain's appearance in No Man's Land won't count. I'll be excited to hear your answers slash thoughts on this revelation I had, or maybe I'm just being a plebe who needs to read more comics. Max, P.S. Is the death of Jean de Wolf, Jean de Wolf, worth a read someone mentioned it on the show a while ago and you sounded excited at the thought of it i did enjoy the death of gene DeWolf. i feel like that's a worthwhile spider-man tale to to read it's very good you agree 
Yeah. Do you agree? Yeah, I know. I brought on a, a fellow Spider-Man connoisseur to talk about this. Do you, let's t- tackle Max's points, I guess, one at a time. Do you agree that there are smaller that smaller characters do not have major storylines that are attached to them that everyone would know about, but they're only storylines that like niche fans would would understand? Or no? I, I think by the nature of the fact that they're smaller characters, that yeah, like less fans would know about them. Like yeah, a lot of fans know about Nightfall, but that's because Batman's a bigger character, therefore the stories have a bigger reputation, but. Maybe Thorne has a character defining story that was like her nightfall, but because she's Thorne, you know, like only diehard Thorne fans know about it. Like you're not going to hear people say, oh, man, that Thorne story from Superman's girlfriend, Lois Lane, number 83. Oh, boy. You know, that was that was Mm -hmm. her something. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, you know, when you talk about I'm actually trying to think of like Wonder Woman, you know, which is someone who you feel like she would have a defining. Would you? But no, I can't really think. Uh, of one see, that and I'm, is... I'm not the best person to ask about Wonder okay. Woman because I have a lot okay. of blind spots there. But people love the George Perez uh, right. run yeah, of Wonder Woman. One. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Okay, there's more like because I, I I read Wonder Woman when I have to do like articles about, it, and I always enjoy it. But I've never done like okay, I'm going to read like all these eras of Wonder Woman. Like I, I've read the John Byrne stuff, and uh, uh, I like Phil Jimenez's Wonder Woman. That that was fun. There's a good issue where like Lois and Wonder Woman like spend the day together for an article. I'm trying to think of other characters that I I could think of. I feel like it could be true of even larger characters that depending on what your fan base is, you might not know as much cuz I I know of because I've read, you know, the Batman ones that Max has mentioned and the Superman ones and the Spider-Man ones, but you know, if I even though I've read Captain America stories, I don't know that I could, unless I count, you know, the death of Captain America. I don't know that I could pick out like, oh, a defining arc for him. So I wonder if it's it depends on perspective. But I also I do agree, Max, though, that I think the smart because we're talking top tier characters, all the ones that you mentioned. And however much I love Barbara Gordon slash Batgirl, I don't know that she'll ever be considered top tier because she is technically the like I said, I don't like it. Technically a derivative character. You, yeah. Do, I guess do you she, think she, she has a nightfall? <laughs> Literally, she does. Remember that arc in? Oh yeah. Near the end of <laughs> <laughs> Oh god. <laughs> it's called nightfall. Oh. So she literally oh, does have a. What nightfall. a horrible villain name. <laughs> I know. I. Um... Oh, was that the one that like tried to be her friend at the end of the arc and like told her that her brother was alive? I remember that vaguely. Oh, <sighs> Yeah, I know. Um, you know, I, I don't know if this is a cheat, but I feel like Batgirl Year One is such a defining story for Barbara Gordon <laughs> that I, I feel like a lot of people would know about that potentially, but it's not in, ter- in, in like the scheme of a long arc or run because it's a standalone. So that would be my only, co- I guess, concern that it wouldn't be answering what Max has laid before us. Yeah, and I think that... Uh- the Batgirl of Burnside, that like uh, era and that first arc, that uh, really caught a lot of people's attention. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe not in like the like uh, moments with the characters, but in just in terms of like the look and the influence and the attitude. And uh, that's the costume that she's using um, in the Harley Quinn show now too. Oh, oh yeah, I did see that. Um, that little 
snippet of her going out while her dad had drunk like five six packs or something yeah they uh, they consulted me on how to write gordon for that show yeah i'm sure as he said whatever <laughs> well he said, has he's got a home so he can't say it oh he became homeless at the end of like one episode i was like oh my there's there's been a few times where like i've said to dawn like i'm like i i feel like our phones are bugged like <laughs> most of the jokes that we've made about gordon have like ended up in this show like <laughs> we couldn't have read it he's like eating there's like a scene where he's hanging out in barbara's dorm and he like uh comes out of the shower to like get a beer he's like i'm just drinking beer in the shower and he like farts and then there's like another scene he's like sitting in his underwear on like a beanbag chair eating chips from his like uh and they fell into his chest hair so he starts eating it from his chest hair and barbara's like that's not even from the bag ew (laughs) and i'm like oh my this is (laughs) but yeah she has the burnside costume (laughs) in that so it's uh Uh, so, so that that could be a defining uh, thing. Yeah, I think some some of them you kind of have to reach back, you know. In my opinion, in history, history. Um, yeah, you know, when she loses her congressional seat, that's a huge character change for her, and you kind of have to see how she can pull herself up from that. What you know, whether or not she does, even running for Congress, I think that was a big arc for her. Oh yeah, I'm trying to think of some of the you know the earlier cases that she had i don't know if i could consider any of them like defining i think the like running for congress you know when her dad got sick and injured i think that was uh a big moment for her what about let's see Cass. (laughs) i was about to say i don't know if we could do this without dom but i guess that's why we have to do it because like he's listening so if we just say like a bunch of wrong stuff he'll get really uncomfortable in text yeah like uh, I think uh, a very good character to find moan for Cass was when um, she was evil in uh, Robin one year later and tried to kill Tim. Um, that was a uh, that was very good and uh, was very. Wait, are you being serious? No, I'm doing that because you, I'm, no, I'm doing Donovan that because Don is listening you. and I'm like because he oh can't control gosh. this conversation. I'm going to. That's <laughs> true. Say all the worst stuff. Yeah, he probably broke his listening device. <laughs> He's like, what? Week. No. Yeah. I haven't thrown a pizza in three years. Oh man. <laughs> I you know losing. I think her ability to. Well, I guess you could say either losing her ability to fight well or as well as she had or just gaining the ability to acquire a language, I think, is a huge moment for her. Yeah, her uh, – I mean and being serious now, uh, her fights with Shiva, those those first two, those were, uh, those, those were real bangers as the kids say. As the kids say, yeah. And then with Steph, what would you, what would you say for her? I love so much of that Brian Q. Miller Batgirl uh, – run i i would not say when she was robin because i don't like how she was handled in that they wrote her to fail and then when she failed she failed big i didn't like how they wrote her be like i love that she was robin but i don't like how they pulled off parts of it i liked um her pregnancy arc from chuck dixon's robin but like that's not like an epic you know death of superman nightfall levels thing that was like you know more of a human subplot of like seeing her like go to a clinic with her mom and talk about what her options were and like say, no, I'm going to keep this baby and then say, well, there's other options. And then she's like, no, I'm, I'm making this decision. I'm going to like see this through. That was interesting. I, I, I like that first arc with her where uh, she first fights her dad and meets Batman and Robin. 
Uh, Stephanie. Do you think um, war games could be considered a Oof. a story for her, even though people don't like it and uh, like it presents her poorly? Do you think that could be her hush? Like people associate no. war games with Steph? No, not She's at all. She's a prop in that. Like she like spends okay. most of war games chained up to a wall, being tortured with a drill from Black Mask. Like she has no agency in that story. Okay. She like it begins with her starting the war games. Then it like the middle section. She's like tortured. Then it ends with her dying. And then they retcon it. Oh, actually, Leslie Tompkins killed her on purpose. And then they retcon that. That okay, no, Leslie Tompkins only faked killing her on purpose. And oh, that was it. it took them years to clean that mess up. Mm, yeah. Well, I mean, Max, I think I think we agree with you. I think there are some arcs that are – I mean, I didn't even talk about some of the Suicide Squad stuff for Barbara as Oracle because I think that really sets the stage for a lot. And I think Birds of Prey uh, is as a whole something that you could really look to as pushing for the characterizations of Barbara and Dinah Lance. But I think you're right that we're, we're not really seeing – I don't even want to call them minor. It's really hard. Like what do you even call them? You know, not – yeah. Tier one heroes have a defining. Well, I'm, story I'm thinking of them. like my favorite minor characters and like Hellcat. And, like, there's not really a lot of like epic Hellcat stories because she spends most of the time that she's Hellcat uh, in like the Defenders, like on team books. Like, she doesn't have like she has a few like solo outings, but none that I would say are like, oh man, this is like a really big epic one. As for Jean DeWolf, I again say that you should read I, – I wonder – I'm trying to think of when you may have heard me talk about it. I did actually have a, a seminar, a comic seminar, and that was one of the arcs that we read with Spider-Man. Since we have a Spider-Man aficionado on there, because I would recommend just starting from Amazing Fantasy number one and or 12. Wow. What is it? 15. <laughs> Amazing <laughs> Fantasy number Amazing one. Fantasy not one. <laughs> They're going to be like, when does and- Spider-Man show up? <laughs> 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 That'd be hilarious. Fifteen, thank you. And then you know, actually starting with you know, Amazing Spider-Man and continuing on, and but you know, that's a. But hey, maybe it's a COVID nineteen sort of journey for you to go on. But what other stories would you recommend uh, for Spider-Man, Josh? Oh, you know, it depends on what the person's tastes are because some people like they they respond like better to other things. Um, anything by JMD Mateus, especially like. Um, one of the most underrated times in Spider-Man was right after the Clone Saga. JMD Mateus and Luke Ross had a run in Spectacular Spider-Man that was really good, and it was kind of over too soon. I, I love that. Um, Peter David, he wrote Death of Gene DeWolf, and he is one of my favorite comic writers. He wrote my favorite run of Supergirl. He wrote Young Justice. He's uh, really good. So um, I love Peter David's run of Spectacular Spider-Man. It was very inconsistent not in terms of quality but in terms of like there was a lot of fill-in issues during it so like uh you'd have to kind of like look to see like when he was on the book and when he wasn't but when peter david was on spectacular spider-man uh it was good i i'd have to know more about the person that i'm recommending it to but uh uh you can't go wrong with death of gene DeWolf though that's a very 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 fun book or (laughs) i say fun it's actually very grim and gritty but you'll have fun reading it i'll say yeah (laughs) and you gotta find your joy as shag says in these times yeah 
Uh, thanks for writing in, Max. And then our final email is from Ian Prime, a.k.a. Ian Miller. He says, Dear Stella and Donovan, in parentheses, really love the comments you all made on Cass's issues and the modern Batgirl. And I'm so sad that we didn't get an issue 200, 100-page super spectacular. Yeah, because, so, okay. So let me address that. So in the previous episode and the email I read there, Ian thought, aren't we on 150? And then I did all the tabulations. And actually, the previous Batgirl that I reviewed, which was 45 and 97, as I call it, was actually issue 200. So, yeah, if only they had done that. Because I think Wonder Woman just made her like 750. So we're I, I, I always that. feel like they're cheating when they do that. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, because all of a sudden they get to the new number and they decide, oh, we're going to change it back. Uh, but anyways, yeah, the 100-page Super Spectacular would have been amazing, but no one decided to do it. All of our Batgirls certainly deserved it, as he says. Though maybe it's a tad egotistical to comment on an episode in which I appear, I do want to thank Don for his thoughtful analysis of Cass's fight with Shiva and how he thinks the timeline for the issues worked. The acknowledgement that Cass losing and gaining her body reading ability so quickly is a bit abrupt helped as that's always frustrated me about this section of Cass's run. Also, Don is completely right. Pennyworth R.I.P. was a huge disappointment. Yeah. And Stella. <laughs> I really like Carmine D. Gian Domenico as a Batgirl artist to the one on the last two issues. I agree with you there. I think it's probably true that he draws in a more serious fashion than the title is being written, but I think that's on the writer. Babs could certainly be the center of a serious dark issue that would fit Carmine's talents, and I think he makes her look pretty cool, even with the less stellar material. Ian. Uh, so that's what we have uh, there. Are you sad that uh, Alfred is is uh, dearly departed? I'm shocked because apparently, like when it happened, I was like, oh, "Okay, you know, at the end, it, we're going to find out it was Clayface, or that like Alfred did something to fake this, or something's going to happen, or that this was all a trick." And then by the end of the arc, he was like still dead. I was like, "Oh!" And apparently, that that's how it happened when they were writing it too, because Tom King said in an interview that. Uh, when he wrote that scene, he, I guess, had a way out or something. But then somebody higher up said, oh, no, 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 like, uh, keep, keep him dead. And I was like, oh, wow. I don't think he'll be dead for a super long time because this is comics. Uh, I say, like, within the next five years, if not sooner, he'll be back. It's not even the first time that Alfred's died. <laughs> so, mm. but yeah, I did not like Pennyworth R.I.P. because I thought that, um, People were not behaving as they should have been. And when a 13-year-old boy that already has emotional issues runs out into the streets and cries, it's all my fault. I blame myself. I killed Alfred. And nobody goes after him to comfort him. That is a horrible family dynamic. Like somebody run after the 13-year-old boy that's blaming himself for this death. Somebody comfort him. Like what are you doing? (laughs) Yeah. You know, I recently learned that uh, Tom King was taken off of the Batman book. Yes, and... I thought that he had left willingly. I don't know if you've heard new information that I didn't hear, but... So, yeah, he was... The way that I heard it was... uh, Initially, I heard that he was taken off, but then it was, like, clarified. Oh, no, he was taken off to finish his story in, like, a miniseries or a maxi series that's, like, coming out. Like Bat- oh, the Batman Catwoman? Batman Catwoman, yeah. That, like, he's still telling the same story, but it's going to be there. And, like, this big thing he was going to do and, like, Batman is going to be done there now. I don't know all of how it happened, but 
from what I understand, it was taken off willingly, but that could just be corporate speak and PR speak. I don't know. Mm, okay. <laughs> we could call up Clark and ask him. Oh, gosh. I Well, I don't know if we would get an answer, unfortunately. <laughs> don't tell him that we're recording. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay, well, Josh and I are going to take a break. And we, when we come back, uh, potentially this is the main event. I mean, it certainly is for Josh. This is the reason why he wanted to come on. So we are going to be, look, be looking at Batman Gotham Knights number six. But first, Zias' Radio Hour featuring Scars to Your Beautiful by Alessia Cara. Scars to your beautiful, that's what they are. I don't know how the song goes, I'm just making it. I mean, <laughs> you certainly are. She just wants to be beautiful, she goes unnoticed, she knows. No limits, she craves attention, she praises an image, she prays to be sculpted by the sculptor. Oh, she don't see the light that's shining Deeper than the eyes can find it Maybe we are made of blind souls She tries to cover up her pain And cut her woes away Cause cover girls don't cry After the face is made But there's a hope that's Shouldn't 
Okay, we're back and ready for the main event. And Josh, you are now taking over with the recap. Oh man, Batman Gotham Knights number <laughs> such, six. Such build up, such pressure. Uh, <laughs> we open up with a cover, uh, a lovely cover that forces us to relive the Killing Joke once again. And I think Stella would appreciate. Yeah, once again. Yeah, I think Stella would appreciate it if we quickly moved on from that. So let's just turn that page. Uh, uh, so Bruce Wayne is at a rich guy club where the one percenters are openly bragging about committing crimes, and one guy who would probably make a good Captain Planet villain. He's talking about uh, this scheme that he has where he's going to like resell plague antidotes. It's all really sketch and. Uh, um, it involves a bank vault. So the scene cuts to Batman. He's searching through a bank vault that's been damaged by the earthquake. And we get this like little computer like narration like box like file number 006 subject Batman category Oracle. I'd have to go back and read like the rest of this like first year of Gotham Knights. But like I don't know who's narrating and I don't remember if it's like revealed in another issue or something because it's not Batman and it's not Oracle. So I'm a little confused about that like uh you're not covering all of gotham knights on this like did uh did did that come up like who's who's doing this narration i i I actually don't know do you think it's within the computer and it's just like something that batman had written in the past but it, it like talks about batman in the third person at like certain points so i guess the only other person it could be would be alfred i wondered about that too Oh, well. Anyway, Batman's searching through the damage quake vault and he's feeding the information to Oracle, which the narrating box reminds us that she's Jim Gordon's niece by birth and dollar by adoption, which is reminding us of that status quo so we could revisit it later. Because usually like the whole niece thing and it's never really brought up. It's just like brought up in like biographies and like flashbacks and stuff like that. People don't talk about it. Um, Oracle panics when Batman mentions that a surf safety deposit box, its contents are missing. Now, Batman's going to farm, you know, the recovery of this out to the GCPD, which makes Barbara really uncomfortable. Um, so Batman, he uh, he traces the number of the box in the Batcave and he figures out that it belongs to Barbara. So he calls Alfred at Brentwood, which is Tim's boarding school, because during this era, um, Alfred was – Kind of Tim's chaperone at this boarding school that his dad sent him to. And he asks him uh, what Barbara's trying to hide. And Alfred rightfully tells Batman that it's none of his business. So Batman, realizing that Barbara wants to keep the contents of this box, whatever it is, hidden from his father, he calls her back and says, actually, I'm going to stay on this case personally, just so you know. So Batman goes to the Penguin and Penguin doesn't have the box, but he knows the guy that the boxes, you know, all these security boxes, but he knows who does have them. So Batman has to hunt for that guy. It's one of those rich one percenters from the club. Uh, Meanwhile, Barbara is looking very, very forlorn and she stares at a picture of her birth parents. And um, I love how Paul Ryan draws her mom, too, where it's she looks different enough from Barbara, but like close enough like her that like you can tell that they're mother and daughter. Um, Thelma and Roger, you know, we rarely ever hear about. She calls her father to talk to him, but flashbacks to Killing Joke and uh, kind of chickens out of whatever she was going to tell him. Batman is able to find the bank vault thief and he gets the items from him and he turns everything over to the GCPD except for the contents of Barbara's box. He decides that he's going to give those to her personally and it's a letter. So Barbara, she kind of 
unloads emotionally on Batman a bit and explains that she stole the letter from her mom. And we get a flashback to Barbara. She's looking to be about maybe, you know, four to six, seven years old. And uh, her birth mother, Thelma, is arguing with Jim Gordon because Jim is trying to, you know, fix whatever is going on in the home with, you know, Barbara's birth parents, you know, having marital problems, her birth father drinking. It's weird when I say father here. I have to kind of distinguish who I'm talking about. And Jim wants to give them money to help them. And Roger comes home drunk and he doesn't want the money. There's a big fight between the brothers and Jim leaves. So Barbara's mom goes off to write a letter and gives it to young Babs and says to mail it out. And Barbara reveals that she never actually mailed the letter, but that she knew that it was a I like what she says. She knew that it was a dangerous letter. Batman's kind of getting uncomfortable from this conversation, but Babs continues and says that the bottom line is, is the letter implies that Jim Gordon might actually be her biological father because before her biological parents got married, her mother and Jim dated and maybe there was some stuff going on after the marriage too. Like the timeline's a bit fuzzy, but she thinks that she might be a Gordon at this point, the conversation, well, she is a Gordon, but you know what I mean? That she might be Jim Gordon's biological daughter. <laughs> Goodness. Yeah. She actually says, uh, her, that Roger is not my biological father after all, but that I am a Gordon. The conversation now shifts. Does Jim know? Barbara can't be sure, but she thinks that he doesn't because he would have confided in her after she was shot. Batman thinks that he deserves to know, but Barbara is afraid that it will change things. And there's a very charged back and forth, you know, where Barbara says, like, where Batman's like, well, what difference would it make? And she says, well, look at your relationship with Dick. He's not your biological son and you don't always treat him the right way. There's a charge back and forth, and Babs admits that she's afraid that Jim will say that it's not true, and she doesn't want to lose him. She desperately wants it to be true, and she can't bear the thought that he'll deny it. So in the way this letter is like Schrodinger's – yeah, well, I was going to say Schrodinger's paternity test because as long as she never brings this up, she's never going to find out if it's true or not. So like she kind of live – in denial and she says he's all i have and batman actually says like you're wrong he's not all you have it's actually a nice moment it looks like he's either sniffing her hair biden style or kissing her on the forehead gordon arrives and they decide to go out for pizza you know Bat- batman leaves obviously you know so uh uh they could have their father-daughter moments and it ends on an ambiguous note mm-hmm. Yeah, because especially since Jim says that he wants to hang out and not talk about anything serious for a time. Yeah, right. So you're like, oh, I guess not. Okay, so I did some research while you were talking, <gasps> which um, I know Shag always says, like, she's not even paying attention. <laughs> and that was the whole hook of this book is that you got some mysterious narrator. You don't know who it is. Hugo Strange apparently appears and you think maybe it's him. But in issue 11, it seems it is revealed that it was written by Batman himself analyzing himself in the third person <laughs> as a distinct entity from Bruce Wayne. Okay. <laughs> he shocks uh he shocks Nightwing with this revelation. Remember the first like arc of I think it was Birds of Prey where like someone's spying on Barbara 
And then you, like, find out that it's Batman, and she, like, yells at him, like, through the camera. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, she knew. Yeah. This, oh, I get yeah. Yeah, This reminds me of that, except I guess he's not spying, but, like, it is, it's really weird. <laughs> okay. It is a bit bizarre. Yeah. So there you go. So now we know. Yeah. Him separating himself from his his alter ego. Okay, well, let it, let's at least address. Oh, there, there, there's the, a lot to address, and I have some questions I, for you oh, too that oh, I wrote absolutely. down. So, uh, oh, great. Okay, the cover. So the cover, which I find rather interesting, has been illustrated by Brian Boland, who of course was the illustrator of the Killing Joke. So that's why there's all that. Uh, no, I don't like to see that in the <laughs> in the background. Uh, and then of course you have Barbara in her chair. And the detail, which I like at the, at the bottom left, is actually she has in her hand the letter, which means nothing to you until you read the actual story. I wish I at one point I should like zoom in and see because you can actually see words written there. You kind of wonder what that letter actually says. But it, yeah, so th- there's the cover there. Dear Barbara, I which, banged uh, your uncle. <laughs> yikes. Well, you know, actually, I actually she wouldn't write well, that. It I was, do it was have for a Jim. Like, <laughs> you owe me uh, child support. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That'd be interesting. Uh, it's like in Atonement where, I don't know if you've watched or read that, but, you know, Robbie gives the letter to the daughter rather than, or the, the younger sister rather than the per, you know, as a messenger. And of course she's going to open it up. So anyways, uh, what do you think about the art overall? I mean, you, in our previous review, you said that you very much liked this. I like Paul Ryan. He's, he's one of the underrated, um, not, not as a speaker of the house. <laughs> I like him when he draws comics. I, I wish that he did that instead of, you know, like, uh, you know, running for speaker of the house and stuff like that. I, yeah, yeah, I know these are two different Paul Ryan's, but um, he's he's one of the more underrated uh, illustrators in the comic book industry. I loved his run on Fantastic Four, um, and I, I like what he does here. And uh, it's 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 good. It's more comic booky, and I like how everyone looks. Um, I wish that the cover, which I know it's is Bolin, but I wish that it wasn't Killing Joke. Maybe for different reasons than you, but I don't like that's not what this story is about. And it like, it it almost kind of like implies that like, that's what it is or that this is the defining moment for Barbara where like this, it it should be her and her dad or like her and her biological parents. And like, you know, maybe like a family photograph with like a crack in it or something like that. Like that one Batman Chronicles one, I realized I just ripped off of, but (laughs) yeah, no, it has. I, I think it works well. I mean, especially with how Bruce Wayne, I think, is is illustrated. And Barbara, you know, she has a decent hairstyle this time, which I always like to comment on because of uh, Professor Allen. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I like how it is drawn and illustrated. And I think the, the flashbacks that they do, I like how they do it differently uh, with the colors, just trying to find it. And yeah, to show that it is kind of a sepia tone or so. So yeah, I, I like it as well. Okay, well, I guess I'll start with my questions. Unless, you know, the big question for me is why now and why now is in 2000 with this potential revelation? What, what do you think it was about this time period? to do So it? when you say why with this revelation, you mean why in universe or why the writers decided to? I would. Well, we could go with both, really. OK, so I have an answer, a sort of answer for the writers one. Okay. So this was written by Devin Grayson, and a few years ago, Donovan and I interviewed her, and it's on. And I have that interview open on the Batman universe, 
And um, I actually I'm, I'm what I remember about when we came up with these interview questions is I remember I put this one in there because I was curious about this. Um, OK, I said, with Gotham Knights, you focused on the members of the Batman family and how they related to Batman in their own way. One of the more memorable stories I found was an issue six that dealt with Batman and Oracle, more specifically with Barbara and the truth about our parentage. Was it your idea to insinuate that Barbara was, in fact, James Gordon's biological daughter, or was that a suggestion by the editors? And Devin Grayson said, it wasn't my idea. That idea had been around for a long time before I got there. But to be honest with you, I don't remember where it came from in that iteration. I think that story was in part a reaction to something someone else had written that I felt to be overtly vague or in some way emotionally off. I wish I could remember the specifics. I'm sorry. So that was uh, her answer. But interestingly, that like this was an idea that she hadn't come up with, but that was something that editorial had suggested. And another why now thing is I would say because Barbara like, yes, Birds of Prey does exist, but not for very long. Like she doesn't have like her own monthly title. Like when would you have had the kind of real estate to tell a story like this? Like you couldn't do something like this in the middle of no man's land because – there's too much going on. You would almost need something like a Gotham Knights to tell this story because Gotham Knights was about like the more soap opera aspects of the Batman family. Mm. And in terms of why now, I, I think that uh, for the characters, I think that Barbara pretty much uh, spells it out that like she's been avoiding this because she does not want to she doesn't want to risk changing their relationship or losing it. And, you know, it's Schrodinger's paternity test. And like, you know, what if the cat's dead? She doesn't want to deal with the cat being dead because if he tells her it's not true, then she can't live in denial. Like she can't, at least in this way, she could like pretend or something like that. She doesn't want the possibility to be diminished. So I, I would think that's why. Well, what's your take? Uh, it's just an interesting I mean, I like that they're father and daughter, and they were father and daughter in the past, and then it was changed. So I, I just wonder, you know, why did that, you know, 2000, like, all of a sudden, yeah, let's bring them back to father and daughter. I, I agree with you, I think, character-wise, and she's kind of pushed to that point anyways because of, I guess it was Cataclysm? Is that what really did it? Cataclysm opened up the banks, or was it No Man's Land? It would, um, it would have been Cataclysm because it was an earthquake damage bank, yeah. That's right, okay. And so she's kind of forced to to deal with it but to think that she had actually been holding on to that letter for so which is interesting because she, you know she's a little girl when she got it so think of the self-control the lack of it in reading but then the self-control to hold on to that and not destroy it hold on to it for years and then get a safe get a safe to, to you know my gosh the forethought of it is kind of ridiculous so i you know i can agree with the the character i think the like continuity wise is kind of the weird thing of like why would they all of a sudden decide to do this oh and the, the continuity but, of this is actually a little off for reasons that we'll get into later too Sure. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that that was my my next question. Anyways, of you know, does this timeline work? Is the whole thing rather suspicious? And then, why would Thelma write a note at that moment? Right. Well, and I and I like the ambiguity that Babs gives too, saying like because she thinks that she says that she has the letter. She says maybe my mom wrote him a letter like this every week. Maybe like you know, like she already told him or something like that. So. 
I liked that ambiguity of it. One thing with the continuity that doesn't work is in the Secret Origins issue that like read that like established that Barbara was the niece and everything like that. When her parents died and she went to live with Jim, it's implied that that's like their first time meeting. Like he looks at her and he's like, oh, you look just like my brother. My brother and I didn't really talk like he's introducing himself to her. And here he's over at the house and Barbara's like old enough that she would know who he is. But you can kind of one of those was written after crisis one of those was written after zero hour and i hate continuity errors but if i'm gonna play the game i have to play the game and say okay well i guess zero hour changed that so that's one thing that doesn't work and there's been a few kind of versions of what happened to thelma and roger because uh there's a legends of the dark knight story that i don't think it's out yet when we're reading this book but it's like out within the next few years and it's uh like Barbara's witnesses like a murder as a little girl. And uh, she's not in witness protection, but like Jim is like hiding, like, you know, the fact that like she witnessed this murder and she's their secret witness and her parents like die in that story. And uh, Barbara senior like gives up Barbara junior to like the criminals because they're going to kill James junior. It's, it's a very, very weird. It was, it was by John Ostrander. I actually think so. There's been a few iterations of like what happened to Barbara's parents and in terms of continuity errors, <laughs> I actually made a very big one regarding Barbara's mother on an earlier episode of BTO that I have to cop to now. So like years ago when we were on with Don, we did an episode. Uh, remember the one where like those mo- that motorcycle gang like went into Barbara's apartment in the Bronze Age? Or just the motorcycle. It, it, well, no, it was like a motorcycle gang oh yeah the bronze they like wrecked a picture of her mom and i said back in the bronze age barbara's mom was still alive um (laughs) because like she's alive in like a golden age story or two like no she was actually dead because i've like since in the past few years and one reason why i picked this book is like i've done like a deep dive after like gotham premiered on like the history of barbara's like paternity and like Thelma versus Barbara Sr. and like how the two characters are different and the same and like what the confusion is because there's like a DC who's who index from pre-crisis that identifies Barbara's pre-crisis mom as Thelma but some books would call her Barbara and then in post-crisis they split Thelma and Barbara into two separate characters it's really a like big complicated thing so Thelma became Jim's sister-in-law and Barbara became Jim's wife This story tries to tie it up. And one question is, do you think that this is something that had to be done? Did the niece thing need to be fixed, in your opinion? Or does this only complicate things more? I mean, I think it makes things a little complicated. I think it also casts uh, a bit of a shady light on, you know, when I was reading, I thought maybe Jim, but also I think, you know, Thelma as well. Because, you know, the timeline is, for me, it doesn't work as well because... With this, it's almost as if Thelma were pregnant when she started dating Roger and then they got married, right? I mean, or or, or they had an affair after the wedding, Jim and her, yeah. So then, in in which case, because I did think about that, I mean, it wouldn't be surprising because, of course, he had an affair with Sarah, yeah, but you know, that just casts him in poor light, so it's almost like it, it, it portrays people badly. So I feel like they could have. At least, you know, I don't even know why they went with the niece situation anyways with the... Uh, p- because you know, because of Batman Year One, it screwed up the timeline. 
It sure did. But, you know, so that that whole thing, but I guess they, they just should have let sleeping dogs lie as much as I like Barbara and the commissioner being father and daughter. But it just seems like it, it complicates things unnecessarily, in my opinion. It complicates things? Like, there's a lot of people that talked about after the New 52, like, restored their original relationship people talked about oh yeah the whole niece thing she was his niece but maybe she's his daughter was confusing i never thought it was that confusing but i could see how especially when i talk about thelma and barbara being the same character then splitting off into two different characters then like you know and all that stuff i could see how if you're a new reader it is a lot to take in I like the soap opera aspect of this, but I do think, yeah, it is simpler to just make them father and daughter. And this is a way to it's not like it brings the Bronze Age back in the continuity. It just it adds an interesting layer to their relationship. But I think that if there's anything that the post-crisis proved is that even if she's not his biological daughter, it doesn't make a difference because he treated her like his daughter, like they were father and daughter. And she never calls him really anything but dad after a certain amount of time. I like that. And I think it speaks to it. And I think and it's kind of like what Batman says. He's like, this doesn't change anything like in your relationship. He views you as his daughter no matter what. And like he'd probably be happy to know that you're also his biological daughter if it's true. And ultimately, Mm -hmm. this story is never revisited. So like we don't know like and now because of the new 52 and there are biological father and daughter again. We'll never know, like, if the contents of the letter were true or not. So it's all, like, within our fan imaginations. But in a way, that puts us in the same position as Barbara, where, like, you know, are we ever going to know for sure? And part of me would have liked more resolution on this, but part of me also likes the ambiguity of it. And I don't mind Jim and Thelma being, like, a little sketchier in this because it it does make these characters more human, you know? Not all families are these virtuous people. Like, they make mistakes, you know, and stuff like that. I guess especially if Roger were an alcoholic, even at that time, it would make sense for Thelma to look for comfort in somebody else's arms that she was comfortable with. Yeah. Why do you think it was that moment? Like, what drove her, though, to write that letter in that moment? I think the stress of the situation. I mean, I've never lived with an alcoholic, so I couldn't say for sure, but... It could also be Barbara's memories or like because when you're a child, you perceive things differently. Like she could have written that letter like the next night or something like that. But like when you're a little girl and you're like traumatized or something like that, like sometimes events kind of like blend together. So like maybe Barbara remembers like she wrote it immediately afterwards, but it could have been the next day or the next week. It's a it's a good question. Thelma is very much an enigma and. It is a question that I was going to ask you later on, um, unless uh, do you have your own thoughts on why Thelma wrote the letter before I ask my question? No, I mean, the only thing I could think is that perhaps it was a way to tell Jim that if anything happens, you know, mm-hmm. Barbara would should and would go to him. I think that would be the only 
uh, reason. I don't know if they're because, of course, Roger came home and he was drunk at that point. Uh, it's not like he did anything dangerous, I guess, with the exception of driving while drinking or while drunk. But uh, I don't know if there was something about that. And and Jim had reached out right to help with that money, and then it was returned. So I I, I would say stress as well as maybe just like a um, a caution or a precaution that if anything happens to either of them, that Barbara should should go to him, and he wouldn't resent it maybe you know i don't know if he would have anyways but just knowing that it is she is his daughter that he would be more welcoming to her Mm -hmm. so one thing that's interesting to me and and i thought a lot about this um about two years ago when i was writing this like I, i did a deep dive on like barbara's paternity and this big article about like the history of the barbara keen quote unquote character like barbara senior barbara she looks to Jim as her father and like and everything like that but she doesn't really talk about her relationship with her other parents that much and even though she was like older when they passed like you know Bruce remembers his parents uh Tim Drake to a degree remembers his parents uh Dick Grayson he doesn't really Dick doesn't really think about his parents that much it's not shown but Barbara she has this photograph of her parents here and it's here because the, of the story like if this if it wasn't this issue we wouldn't be seeing that photograph we never see that photograph out but why is it do you think that barbara doesn't mention her birth parents that much and do you think they hold a big place in her mind and in her heart but we just don't see yeah it. well what are your thoughts as someone who lives in barbara gordon's head a lot more than yeah, I, I do know. is that i would like to think that she does think of them i think she remembers people of the past i mean think of how affected she was when her comrade in arms died on one of those missions for the suicide squad so i feel like they are in my character's mind they are there it's just that it's not written that way because there's such a focus on her relationship with Jim so it's almost as if that is her family and Sarah was her family and things like that so unless unfortunately unless the story drives us to that point we we don't get to see it as much but uh you know I'm trying to think of times where you know when would they pop up necessarily you know or it's not like they were terrible parents. Like you said, they had their flaws. So it's she can't really relate to Cassandra Kane in that way. And then Jim is really pops up so frequently that when she's looking at him, she's not necessarily going to see Roger or remember all that. So I also wonder, you know, when would we actually see it? Right. Yeah. Because it's like I'm talking about with Birds of Prey, you know, with like, that's why this came up now. We don't have a lot of deep dives into Barbara where it's like just her solo. She's either talking the black canary or dealing with something with her father. And one thing that like I realized as I was putting that article together too, is, um, you know, Jim and Barbara senior, they adopt Barbara. So like they are her legal mother and father. And I feel like, and it's not talked about here, you know, but to a lesser extent is that Barbara, yeah, I'm going to call her Barbara Keene just for simplicity's sakes. Like Barbara Keene more or less abandons Barbara Gordon after the divorce. Like she is no longer Barbara Gordon's mother, even though she adopted her. And I think that that kind of adds to the whole parental abandonment issues. Like after killing joke, like, you know, she should be visiting her adopted daughter in the hospital. She should be helping her recover. But 
it was interesting to me to like realize this like whole like kind of story underneath the surface that uh Barbara has these parental issues and this is one reason why and in in Scott Snyder's run right before the new 52 that like where James Jr comes back and like he kidnaps uh Barbara senior and like tortures her there's like a scene where like Barbara is like you know looking at the vital signs of her like adopted mother and there's like no familiarity there. She's like, oh, yeah, Barbara seniors, you know, the vitals are state or stable, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, that's your adopted mother. But uh, but but as I'm looking at the series, it's like, well, yeah, she adopted you. Then she abandoned you after she divorced your dad and she took your brother somewhere, your adopted brother somewhere else. That kind of goes with Barbara's feelings in this book that the whole like Jim is all I have thing where her mm. her biological parents died then she's in a new family where she has a mom, a dad, and a little brother. And this mom who adopted you and who's supposed to love you forever because she adopted you leaves and decides not to be your mother anymore. And she takes your little brother with you. So this family that you thought you had, you no longer have now. And now it's just you and your dad and you're holding on to that, which really makes me wonder what her opinion was. And I wish the writers would have gotten into this when Sarah came along you know, did that make her more apprehensive of Sarah? And she does have that comment at the funeral where she says, I never had a chance to call her mom. And after being abandoned by Barbara Keene, I could see why she would be hesitant to call Sarah mom and then feel guilty, like, you know, that she never opened up to her before she died. But then this other person who could be a potential mother figure for her is dead as well. So in a way, and it's not discussed in this issue as much because this issue is more about her relationship with Jim. Barbara's lost three mothers in her life. Oh. Yeah, yeah, no, no. <laughs> I, 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 oh, okay. I, 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 I was giving you the volleyball. <laughs> Barbara, <laughs> no, it just ended so abruptly. Barbara has lost three mothers in her life. Yeah, so it's which. Which makes it so amazing how great of a mentor and mother she is to people like Steph and Cass, right? Because I yeah. think she hasn't had as much of motherhood modeled to her. Because I just feel like she was young when she was, you know, abandoned and then her biological mother died. And then she didn't, I mean, she was an adult woman by the time Sarah came around. So uh, she beat the odds and became a good mom. No, it's it's really it's a really complicated story. It's not only complicated continuity wise, but I think just in terms of the the narrative and and what it would speak to about all the characters that are involved for sure. Do you feel like this reveal is more poignant that Jim could be could be her father or the reveal of Jim actually saying he knew Barbara was back all way back in the Bronze Age? Which one do you feel like hits home more for you? I mean, I feel like the, this one would hit more home because it's uh, I feel like the implications are deeper than like, you know, him knowing that she's a superhero uh, just because this calls their biological relationship into question, which is a much deeper discussion than I actually go out at night at Batgirl, like because this is a revelation that can only be between. The two of them, anyone could find out that she's Batgirl, but not anyone could find out that they're her biological father. 
Okay, like you couldn't tell this story with Alfred. Alfred has Julia, <laughs> but you can. Julia. But, but yeah, Alfred, we're not going to tell a story where Alfred. <laughs> Thelma also wrote six letters that night. She wrote one the Jim. She wrote one the Alfred. She wrote one the Yikes. Bullock. She wrote one the Thomas Wayne. She wrote she one. Got around. Yeah, she. Uh, oh man, I mean, Roger was out at the bar many nights, and Thelma had to. That's true. Thelma was very lonely, although maybe not so. too lonely. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, I suppose not. I, I disagree with you, in my opinion, uh, with my rereads. I think I, I find the revelation that he knew that she was Batgirl a bit more poignant because I, I think there's just so much inherent trust there in that situation that he never put a stop to it and pride as well as a father, and it's a very open moment. Whereas this, yes, you're on the track there. I think I get what you're saying, but it never comes to fruition. She doesn't have that talk with him. I think if we had seen that talk and actually now have it cemented that, yes, they are biological father and daughter, then I could point to that. But it's just like academic. I think it's it's an academic debate because we don't know until they actually have that. So that, that finality is not there, which is why I feel like this is a lot of buildup for something that doesn't yet happen. Do you know when it's actually revealed and, and whether when he finds out, or are we always in that limbo until? Yeah, well, no, we're, happens? we're always, we're always in the limbo. Um, okay. I mean, so it's, it's, it's ambiguous. So because it's in limbo and it's in our fan minds, what do you think happened? Do you think in off panel land, she, uh, okay. they had a talk, uh, we, we, we could speculate now. Yeah, well, I don't. I don't like off-panel, and as you know, oh, so I mean, I. If, it's, if it's something that's worthwhile, it needs to be shown, and that would be something that is clearly worthwhile. I, I think she. It seems like, given the situation, she leaves it as is, mm-hmm. um, in this unknown. I mean, that's that's what it feels Into like to me. Unknown. Thank you. <sighs> yeah, I, I think that they would need a bigger push, like maybe something traumatic happening. And that's why she said, maybe after I got shot, he would have said something. Although you could counter that with maybe Jim is in the same situation that she's in where he's also wondering if he should tell her. And maybe the conversation that Batman and Barbara are having, maybe before Sarah died, Sarah had that conversation with Jim saying, you should tell her. And he's like, no, what if she tells me that it's not true? What if she like thinks I'm trying to replace her dead father? Like, what if, Maybe he's having those same doubts that she's having. You know, I I wonder that because Jim Jim has some problems opening up about things too, and he could also be very stubborn. Like he he's a little more like Batman than he cares to admit, and I I think he's <laughs> sure. I think he's more like Batman than Barbara would care to admit too. Like, uh, yeah. um, I think Barbara would would not want to know that Jim and her father, or Jim and her father, wow, eh, Jim and Batman are that much alike. So I think he's also possibly keeping it a secret because because of the timeline of Barbara's birth if there's a possibility that he is the biological father and he was with Thelma in a biblical way within nine months of the birth he would have to at least suspect he would have to at least wonder and maybe with his police forensic stuff he did it and actually I was going to say no he probably would not have done a DNA test for the same reason that Barbara didn't say anything because he probably would not want to find out that it isn't true. He would probably would want to keep that possibility open and just never address it. So I don't know. Maybe they're both stubborn and they're just never going to talk about it <laughs> till the day that they die, which would be really sad. <laughs> it would be. But, uh, I mean, continuity changed, so I suppose it doesn't matter in the long yeah. run. Yeah. 
This too is a yeah academic conversation. Speaking of Batman, Batman and Jim, something that was quizzically said, or he said that made me confused a bit, or why why would it matter? Batman at one point says that he should not be hearing this stuff because he is Jim's best friend. Yeah. And I wondered why that would matter. Like, why would he be like, no, 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 I can't hear you, can't hear you, I'm his <laughs> best friend. Why? What What would that change, his relationship? How would it change? I think just putting Batman in an uncomfortable position where, like, he's hearing something that, like, Jim should be hearing instead or, like, he's being put into the middle of a situation or, like, I don't know. It would be like if I'm trying to think of like somebody who if somebody who I knew that wasn't really as close with you came to you with like personal information about me that I didn't know, like you might have that reaction like oh, I'm one of Josh's best friends. Maybe you shouldn't be like coming to me about this. Like go to him. Mm, or just, like, I see. OK, I can get on board with that. Yeah. If, thing- if Ben never came to you about a secret letter that he found or something. <laughs> I was about to make a joke, but probably going to be inappropriate. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) There is another panel, trying to get here, ah, that I had to read several times to kind of get the the sense of what she was saying, as well as, I guess, connecting pronouns and everything. So let's see here. Batman says, gosh, page number uh, 20. If, you, if you're looking at that. All right, here we you go. don't think family's important to him, especially now after losing his wife. What makes you think he'd be more concerned with them than with you? So them meaning his... I, well, that, see, that's my confusion. And then Barbara says, what makes me think that? You. You make me think that. You who raised somebody else's kid, too, except that as wildly devoted as he's been to you all this time, you've been so preoccupied with your dead parents that you've barely acknowledged he's there. Uh, and Batman says that's not fair. It's inaccurate and it has nothing to do with Jim. So first question is, is the one she's talking about Dick? Right. Okay, just wanted to be clear on that. And the other thing, just like, how does that connect? I mean, I've been trying to work this out. Like, what makes you think he'd be more concerned with them? So the them is my confusion. Them meaning... Maybe maybe he means Roger and Thelma. Maybe, yeah. So then how does that... That's interesting in in terms of... Which I guess, yeah, connects with the, the dead parents that he would be. Yeah. But that... So he would get upset, I guess, in, in their... In their memory of dishonoring their memory and finding this out, maybe or it's just a, it's an interesting. It, it, yeah. It's a minefield. And when you said, you know, what is what does the dick <laughs> thing have to do with Jim? And Batman even says like that that has nothing to do with us. Yeah. And that's actually a running subplot throughout Gotham Knights. And it's been a while since I've read all these issues, but I do know that like Batman's relationship with Dick becomes a subplot, and he eventually, like within the next few years, in the pages of Gotham Knights, he formally adopts Dick. And like it, and it's a big deal. Well, that's good. Yeah, he's got a lot of stuff to make up for. Uh, <laughs> you would say that. <laughs> okay, I would. Yeah. Okay. Well, it kind of clears it up. I think it's just uh, those four panels or so are just um, really interesting. You know, I will say. So we get back to this empathy point where you said he's got a lot of empathy there. I think he doesn't show it until the end. Like he's listening to her. I think he has. Mm-hmm. Maybe compassion, I guess we could say. Uh, but the empathy, I think, doesn't come in until later. And I think it is a very beautiful moment where, where he kisses her head and, and says, you're wrong. That he's sniffing her hair. He's not all. <laughs> I think that'd be strange. Uh, he leaves a Joker card on her wheelchair. 
Okay, that is inappropriate to say on this podcast. Okay. That that you're wrong to think he's all you have. So I think that is uh, a great. That was moment. sweet. Yeah, and then at the end, I think we've we've got well, you know, the question dangles as to whether they know the other person knows that the other person knows and all that stuff. There is that sweet moment I think with Babs and Jim at the end, and so I think while she pays honor to her father and mother as she knew them, I, I think she does um, mm-hmm. also. Yeah, have and, and maybe that's what that last panel is saying is that it doesn't matter because you know, like. You know, the past doesn't matter. They're going out for pizza. They are father and daughter. Like, and, you know, he's not all she has. And the blood doesn't matter. Maybe that's the lesson of the story. Absolutely. Um, My last thing, which the narration, I mean, we could, well, now it's been answered, but I just think it's really interesting that Batman, as we know him, is not narrating, but it's this third person omniscient because I think you get interesting thoughts from both sides, which is weird now that we know that he sort of split his, like, his psyche, I guess, into two. But there's a joke that Alfred says that I cracked up at and laughed at and thought Carolyn must have loved as well. And I felt vindicated and everything I've ever said about Batman. So take that, Donovan. Batman says, what page is this? We talks to Alfred. Um, um, I'm on... I don't know what page it is, uh, but it says, let's see, Alfred, what could Barbara have hidden away in a safety deposit box that she wouldn't want found and he says by you sir perhaps a copy of the latest cosmopolitan quiz on how to tell whether or not your bus your boss truly trusts you and appreciates your loyalty (laughs) thank you alfred for basically giving me the the stamp of approval that everything i've said is correct from the mouth of alfred himself oh man how to tell if your boss trusts you and appreciates your loyalty. Man alive, I love that moment. Okay, well, do you have anything else on this really intriguing issue? Oh, man. Um, not right now. I'll probably have a million thoughts like six hours from now, six weeks from now, or listening. <laughs> you can back write to the, in if you would I'm like. going to write into myself, like, here's what Josh was wrong about. It's uh, Oh, you can bat-splain I'm going to bat-splain myself. No, just the whole Barbara's paternity <laughs> thing. It's a really interesting conversation. And like I said, yeah, like if, when I wrote that Barbara Keene article, it just like it really hit me, like Barbara's mother issues and how like they're not talked about and how like mm. it must be it, it just must be really interesting for her absolutely so what would you give this out of 10 cosmopolitan quizzes would you believe no, I'll do, 10 I, yeah I'll, no you would not i, I would <laughs> <laughs> you're just as bad as donovan okay, whatever whatever <laughs> i've thrown okay. zero pizzas on zero roofs so yeah, that makes one of us. Okay, well, interesting. You know, I, I, I don't. I definitely don't give it a ten. I'm Whoa. leaning towards a seven. I'm leaning towards a seven out of ten. I guess I'll be generous and give it a seven point five out of ten. Cosmopolitan quizzes. You know, it's just like a lot of buildup for like in the end, it kind of is anticlimactic, which I like. The ending in the sense of her and uh, she and Jim get together at the end and um, you're right. It doesn't necessarily matter. But just all of this anxiety that she built up. And then we didn't even talk about it. But, you know, in the background of all this, which is really interesting, you've got this case and mission going on with Penguin and blackmail and all of that stuff. And you almost forget that that's happening because it takes it it's, it's just a setup to, to this. 
It is, yeah. But you know the 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 continuity. It's just really. It's kind of confusing and like overcomplicates things. And you wonder how this would have worked. Why a young girl? We don't. We do know why a young girl would open the letter, but we don't know why a young girl would keep that letter for years and years, for decades actually, and then have a uh, social, uh, security box with only that thing inside. I'm here's sure. an alternate so, theory. Oh, okay. What if Thelma knew that Barbara would keep the letter and she did this on purpose? Hmm. She gave her, hey, mail this, knowing that Barbara would be too curious and would read it anyway. Because she can't sit down. She doesn't have the courage to sit down and have this conversation with her child. And if she does, then it's going to create a whole can of worms and Roger. But this way, it's her way of telling her daughter the truth without having to actually like have the conversation and tell her the truth. And then she has plausible deniability. And she knows that Barbara will try and keep it a secret so it won't upset Roger. Because Barbara won't want to get in trouble for like reading the letter plausible but then of course it calls into question the parenting of Thelma which you said she was flawed (laughs) but then I mean you're basically like psychologically damaging a small child by not having that sort of conversation I mean it's a a psychologically damaging household in general it seems like it okay well yeah so I'm going to go 7.5 out of 10 cosmopolitan quizzes on whether your boss trusts you and appreciates your loyalty it's a very specific quiz Well, uh, it's a good thing she's taking it. I'm sure all of Batman's, I mean, Helena, uh, Huntress needs (laughs) to take that. Uh, Stephanie Brown (laughs) needs to take that. Uh, Basically, everybody, I would say. Okay, well, uh, now over to Chris for his cornucopia of curiosities. Ah, that's like saying the same thing from last month. Thank you very much, Stella. Hello, Bat fans. Welcome once again to the Chris's Cornucopia of Curiosities segment. Thank you very much for downloading, and as always... Thank you for not fast-forwarding. My name is Chris, and I'm very glad to be with you. Today, I'm reviewing Batman Adventures number 30, and unfortunately, there is no Nightwatch segment for this episode. Batman Adventures number 30 was cover dated March 1995 and cover priced at $1.50. For this one, we have a creative team of Kelly Puckett as the writer, and Rick Burchett was the artist, and Glenn Murakami was the colorist. The Batman was created by Bob Kane with Bill Finger, The story was reprinted in the Batman Adventures trade paperback, Volume 4, and does appear to be available on the DC Comics app for $16.99 for the entire trade itself. However, not the individual issue. And our story today is entitled, Natural Born Loser. Act 1. Waiting for the Dough. A two-bit hood named Marty is beaten up by two elderly women and misses out stealing a fragment of a map to a giant pearl being beaten to the punch by the trio Mastermind, Mr. Nice, and the Professor. Marty, who has all of the map but a small missing piece, is consoled by his girlfriend Erica before he visits the trio in prison while posing as a reporter. Marty asks Mastermind about his last heist, and if he may have found a map, but the Mastermind infuriates Marty by talking about his origin, essentially getting even with a high school bully, and ultimately telling Marty he didn't take anything from the documents wing in the last heist. And further, he should talk to Mr. Nice. Act 2. The Dark Nice Returns. Marty then goes to Mr. Nice's cell and asks him if he took anything from the documents wing. Mr. Nice asks if he can tell a story, and he goes on to tell his origin, from being an infant who can handle a gun, to an adult hosting a TV kid show, who took out a group of terrorists that stormed the show, 
but the resulting act of violence alienated the kids, thus losing his job and him turning to a life of crime. He then hugs an infuriated Marty by saying he wasn't assigned to the document's wing. Marty then goes to the professor, who decides to ask for his origin story first before asking about the map, but then the professor tells Marty he's fallen into Mastermind's trap. Act 3. It's a mad, 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 mad pearl. Mastermind tells Marty that when he hugged the professor, he stole the main map from Marty. The trio make a jailbreak, only to be confronted by Erica at gunpoint, who wants the map for herself. Marty turns the tables on Erica, and with the complete map in tow, takes off for the site. However, all is not lost for the would-be crooks, as the professor knows that the site is upstate. The trio make it to the site, just inside a cave where they find Marty, but the professor doesn't know what all the fuss was about, for the pearl is still inside the clamshell, and it won't be ready for another 12 years, just as the shadow of Batman comes up behind them. The End My notes, the two elderly women who overpower Marty at the beginning of the story are Penelope and Beatrice Biddy, a pair of amateur detectives that Puckett previously used in Detective Comics number 634. As previously stated, Mastermind is modeled after Mike Carlin, Professor is modeled after Denny O'Neill, and Mr. Nice is modeled after Archie Goodwin. Okay, so it's not a Batman story. I had a hard time deciding how to score this. An internal vanity story? Mm, That's a bit harsh. It is a good comedic story. Burchett's art is very good, and Erica looks like she just stepped out of a Tex Avery cartoon. And Marty does a slow burn that's really, really well depicted. Though we don't get an origin of the professor, it doesn't matter. This title always did provide something different, and occasionally unpredictable, as it did here. Yes, even in Gotham City, there is an occasional bit of humor, and this one was pure screwball. With that, I'm going to give Batman Adventures number 30 a solid 7 out of 10 bats. On our last episode, Donovan asked if I was going to cover Batman The Adventures Continue. Yes, that is something I do want to cover at some point. Perhaps after this volume of Batman Adventures is winding down, as I'm getting close to the end of this volume. I hope to look at it in print, though, as I prefer that format over digital. I also want to look at the other Batgirl appearances and such titles as Batman Adventures and Batman Strikes as well. Listeners, don't forget you can find Stella on the Required Reading Podcast. I'd like to give a shout-out to my friends, the Sutherlands. Be sure to check out their fine podcasts on the Rad Adventures Network. If you have any feedback for this segment or for the podcast, please head over to the Batman Universe website. And if you'd like to lend your support to the Batman Universe website, which has news, features, and a fine family of podcasts, follow the links on Patreon or by making a one-time donation with a link that can be found on the Batman Universe homepage. Thank you for your support. You can also find me on the Professor Frenzy Show podcast, where my friend Jerry has some great upcoming projects. You can also find us on the Memory Minute Monday and Professor Frenzy's Bedtime Stories podcast on that feed, as well as YouTube. And please do us a favor, check it out, and if you like what you see, click on the button and subscribe. Thank you very much. Why is Bruce Wayne knocked out and kidnapped? Who ties explosives and dynamite to Bruce? Can Robin possibly come to his rescue in time? Don't fail to listen to the next podcast where the answers to these anxious anarchist atrocities will be answered analytically next time. Same Stella feed, same Stella sight. Thanks, Stella. And as always, thanks for not fast-forwarding. Ah, that's like that first step outside of fresh air after being in a quarantine for two months.
Well, I was I knew it was going to happen and so I just let it happen. Now we are wrapping up. Oh, uh, you know what? I did actually recently watch a, a couple anime, but I have to get back to you and do that next time cuz I forgot to write it down. So, I'll anime watch list will I guess return I know next episode. But uh our final segment of course is literature recommendation. Josh, are you reading any books or comics or uh as you are walking do you listen to any audio oh man um i read uh, about a month or two back defending jacob and i was uh oh oh yeah because of that new series that's coming I didn't, out? and i didn't realize it was going to be a new series like afterwards like i like looked online to see what other people had said about the book and i was like and it was um chris evans is going to be in defending jacob the tv series i was like ooh. <laughs> I was really, really, really like gripped like the whole way through this. This was good. Um, And it's about a father who he's um, uh, a prosecuting attorney for the states and um, someone at his son's school is murdered. And initially the father is in charge of the case. But then when his son becomes a suspect, uh, he's taken off of the case and it just deals with, you know, him trying to defend his son and it gets it gets very deep and like you're just gripped until the last page and i would (laughs) i couldn't put that down and now i'm reading another book i think it's called presumed innocent or something like that and it's Mm. a similar type setup uh because i'm 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 trying legal thrillers you know for um i you know i read them before i go to bed and then i put on the audible versions when i'm like going for walks at night that's been fun and i uh um, in terms of what to watch, I forgot to mention before, uh, DC Universe's Harley Quinn. It's funny, and Barbara's on it, so you should all watch it. And uh, there's an episode. When, when, when does this episode drop? It'll drop in May. Actually, Tuesday. Okay, so by the time this drops, uh, <laughs> the episode that's about to air will have already aired, where, like, the opening is just, like, this big shots-fired thing where, like, they make fun of, like, the Snyder cut people and stuff like that, which I never thought I'd see from a DC show. That was, oh my gosh. I did see, uh, it must've been a trailer for the new season where they're like in some sort of wintry place and she's got her little group of people and they go to a cave and then somebody, it's either her or Croc says it looks like a vagina. And I thought, so that's what this, why this series is rated TVMA. (laughs) I have yet to watch it. It's it's very raunchy. I hear fun things. Yeah, so I mean, maybe I'll give it a couple episodes, see if I can. It, it's it. an easy binge, and uh, because they're like twenty-minute episodes, and it's like you know a thirteen-episode first season, and we're in the middle of the second one, and they're doing No Man's Land for the second season, and uh, it's uh, and Barbara is a focus in the second season. Like um, she was in the third episode, Riddle You. I think that was the third one, or was the second one? I don't remember, but. Uh, and then the episode that's airing this Friday, it's like a Batgirl and Batman centric one uh, where they team up. It's really good. Okay, something to look forward to. <laughs> For my literature recommendations, I have two, four, six. So I'll try to go through these quickly. I read the six volumes of Lock and Key by Joe Hill and Gabrielle Rodriguez. Lock and Key tells of Key House, an unlikely New England mansion who with fantastic doors that transform all who dare to walk through them. Home to a hate-filled and relentless creature that will not rest until it forces open the most terrible door of them all. Uh, And then I just started watching the Netflix show, though I would say that it's really, if it's one of those situations where if you like 
Birds of Prey, the comic book, you need to go in with a different mindset to see Birds of Prey, the film, that kind of thing. So if you like those, you should go in with a different mindset when watching the the series. Then I read The Shining, which I've been averaging about 100 pages a day. But by the end of The Shining, I think I read like the last two pages. The original book? Yes. Yeah, by Stephen King. Uh, And I – because I just needed – it was the last – night at uh the hotel and so i i just needed to to finish it basically oh man you read that uh, at a hotel <laughs> oh no it was their last night the kid the torrance's last night at the oh, hotel okay okay and so i like really need to finish it instead of delaying it for the next day yeah no that would have been scary wouldn't it jack torrance's new job at the overlook hotel is a perfect chance for a fresh start as the off-season caretaker at the atmospheric old hotel he'll have plenty of time to spend reconnecting with his family and working on his writing but as the harsh winter weather sets in the idyllic location feels ever more remote and more sinister and the only one to notice the strange and terrible forces gathering around the Overlook is Danny Torrance, a uniquely gifted five-year-old. So, yeah, it was gripping. And then I watched the film. And thanks to Tom, who lent this to me, as well as the film. And I watched the film, which I knew was different. And then I watched with my mom at the same time online something called The Shining Code, where these people investigate that they believe The Shining – and they actually give – you know, ev- I'll say evidence with quotation marks. The Shining is Stanley Kubrick's apology slash confession that he filmed the Apollo 11 moon landing. Oh, that's wow. It's interesting. So, for example, in the book, in the novel, the room that Danny shouldn't go in is 217. But in the film, it's 237. And you're like, why on earth would Kubrick, who changed a lot of stuff, arguably, change it to 237? So it's because the moon is 237 miles away from the earth. So there's just one instance. But there are all these symbols of Apollo 11 everywhere. Take that as you will. If if you Um, look for a pattern with anything, you're going to find a pattern. I'm sure. I then read Douglas Adams's The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy because Tom and I just covered it on required reading. Seconds before the Earth is demolished to make way for a galactic freeway, Arthur Dent is plucked off the planet by his friend Ford Prefect, a researcher for the revised edition of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, who for the last 15 years has been posing as an out-of-work actor together this dynamic pair begin a journey through space aided by quotes from the hitchhiker's guide a towel for example is most is about the most massively useful thing an interstellar hitchhiker can have and a galaxy full of fellow travelers like zaphod Beeblebrox, the two-headed three-armed ex-hippie and totally out to lunch president of the galaxy trillion zaphod's girlfriend formerly trisha mcmillan whom arthur tried to pick up at a cocktail party once upon a time. Marvin, a paranoid, brilliant, and chronically depressed robot. Viet Vujagic, a former graduate student who is obsessed with the disappearance of all the ballpoint pens. He, pens, sorry, pens he read over the year. What? He's found, lost, lost all the ballpoint pens he has lost over the years. Gosh. So there you go. So I finally read that for the first time. Then I read... I'm almost done. The Holy Barbarians by Lawrence Lipton, uh, which is basically about the beat generation, um, holy in its search of self, barbarian in its total rejection of the so-called civilized standards of success and morality. So you can check that out. The Pearl by John Steinbeck. 
Uh, not that insane person. Like his father and grandfather before him, Kino is a poor diver gathering pearls from the gulf beds that once brought great wealth to the kings of Spain and now provide Kino, Juana, and their infant son with meager subsistence. Then, on a day like any other, Kino emerges from the sea with a pearl as large as the seagull's egg, as perfect as the moon. With the pearl comes hope, the promise of comfort, and of security. Uh, but unfortunately, evil lurks. And then finally, which I listened via audiobook, thank you, Audible, Dr. Zhivago by Boris Pasternak. This epic tale about the effects of the Russian Revolution and its aftermath on a bourgeois family was not published in the Soviet Union until 1987. Dr. Yuri Zhivago, Pasternak's alter ego, is a poet, philosopher, and physician whose life is disrupted by the war and by his love for Lara, the life of a revolutionary. His artistic nature makes him vulnerable to the brutality and harshness of the Bolsheviks. The poems he writes constitute some of the most beautiful writing featured in the novel. Uh, I will say, though, that he is not the best of characters just because he has, like, three wives. I mean, if you consider Vlara his wife, I mean, he abandons one of his family and just leaves a second family, wanders off. It's, yeah, he's not the best person. But it was still a beautiful novel. Well written. Uh, and that's all I have for you. Josh, before we go, where can we find and support you? Um, DCComics.com slash news and DCUniverse.com slash news. Uh, those are uh, uh, th- those are my two hangouts, and um, I do occasionally uh, write for the BatmanUniverse.net, which uh, uh, you know where Stella and I got our humble beginnings. Uh, um, let's see. In fact, I have um, going up probably within the next week or two a review on that Grayson uh, Car- uh, Lost Carnival novel, and maybe an editorial or two here or there. Um, but otherwise, yeah, I mean, most of my podcast stuff is guest star stuff now because I, uh, who has the time to do a regular podcast anymore? Um, it's, it's amazing that you've kept up with it for as long as you have, uh, you are, you are the MVP. (laughs) Can they search you by name on those articles at DC? So on dccomics.com, if you click on my author name, it does like a 404 error. But uh, if you click on like that, usually there's tags. There's like an author tag and it'll take you to almost all of my articles. Not all of them are tagged. Um, and on DC Universe, you might be able to put my name into the DC Universe like little search box. But uh, I mean, if, if you go to dcuniverse.com slash news, I mean, I usually have something up like – at least like three to like six stuff up a week. So it shouldn't be too hard to find. And Donovan's there too. And uh, we're still trying mm-hmm. to talk Stella into getting on there. <laughs> I know. That's true. Well, now that I'm out of, out of work, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Send, send, send some pitches into Joe and Dixon. It's a, uh, I mean, <laughs> you went, you went out to um, a dancing show with, uh, with the other. So like, I mean, you, you pretty much have an in after that. When we sat go. through that burlesque, am I allowed to say that we sat through the burlesque show together? I don't. I think we talked about it. Okay, yeah. yeah. Well, there we go. We sat through that burlesque show together. So, I mean, I think that, like, sure. you're pretty much in after that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, thanks again for coming on and enlightening all of us as to the secret origins, the secret, secret origins of Barbara Gordon and whether or not everyone knows them. Yeah, holy cow, this this, this was a big one. <laughs> it certainly was. Well, as always, you can send any questions or comments to BatgirlTheOracle at gmail.com. And if you have something for Josh, I can always forward it to him. And maybe Josh will write in, too, if he thinks of stuff that They're going to um, yell at me about Tiger King. And there was, like, another controversial right. thing I said I don't yeah. remember, too. 
I don't recommend watching Tiger King personally. I was forced to watch episode one, and uh, I never went back after that. You can also find the show on Google Play and Stitcher, like the show on Facebook, or follow it on Twitter at Batgirl Oracle, and follow the Batman Universe on Facebook and Twitter as well. And be sure to support TBU by subscribing to Patreon. Once again, thanks to My High Comics for sponsoring Backer to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Uh, keep safe out there. Uh, next time should be some Cass and Birds of Prey, and then two times from then we'll have some Officer Down with Professor Allen. But until then, fly on, Babs lovers, no matter who your mother or father is. There you go. Just plain Barbara Gordon, or possibly Barbara Thelma Gordon, or Barbara Roger Gordon's daughter, riding off into her paternity cycle. Yikes. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you?